And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. On this Christmas Eve 2022, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where we boldly go where very few people have uh, ventured to go before. But tonight, my, my sole guest, and we may be joined by some surprises in the third hour, or maybe not, but my sole guest tonight is my friend and colleague. I've known him, gosh, forever and ever and ever. Um, his name is Robert Morningstar, and you have heard him on the show countless times covering an extraordinary range of subjects and material and research and background and individual proclivities for curiosity that he exhibits all over the place. So I thought tonight, given that this is the kind of end of the year, and we have just undergone an extraordinary, um, really a Christmas present, which we will be reiterating tomorrow night on Christmas night, given that everybody has family and friends and parties and all that stuff. Uh, for those of you who are hanging out close to the fireplace or close to the radio, tomorrow night we're going to uh, play the program from last Sunday night again, which is the basic encapsulation of this extraordinary data from the Artemis mission, the recent NASA unmanned test mission of the new Artemis program, follow on to the Apollo program, uh, which ended just a few days ago with the successful return of the unmanned Artemis Orion spacecraft to the Pacific Ocean, just kind of off Baja. Uh, they were going to try to land off uh, San Diego, uh, but the weather precluded them from doing that, so they had to cut the uh, entry slightly short and landed off Baja. And the spacecraft is now literally en route on a big flatbed covered by many tarps from San Diego to Cape Canaveral where it will arrive kind of uh, end of next week, I think, or maybe middle of the week. And then we'll start downloading all kinds of data recorded on board, including, I'm hoping, the incredible 4K imagery taken of the moon as the Orion spacecraft in its 26-day unmanned test flight looped around the moon. Um, okay, so that's kind of background. Well, while all this was going on, um, something else occurred to NASA in space. I believe it was Thursday. The uh, Russians were supposed to do a uh, spacewalk, uh, fixing up more gear as part of the Russian section of the International Space Station. And just before they all were suited up, they were in the airlock, they were going through the final checks, and somebody, either the astronauts in, in the space station, looked at a screen or the folks in Houston looked at a screen and they noticed what you see in item number one in my section tonight of Radio with Pictures, uh, which was a snowstorm taking place around the Soyuz ferry vehicle, which is always docked to the space station to provide a easy means of evacuating the crew in case they should have to abandon ship and return quickly to Earth. Well, if you look at that, that is coolant, which is leaking out at a prodigious rate. The, this went on for hours and hours and hours until all the coolant 
uh, in that particular what they call a loop, which is basically plumbing, uh, leaked out into space, into the vacuum. Um, and now, of course, that coolant is no longer available in the spacecraft to do what it's supposed to do, which is to cool things. So for the last several days, there has been a uh, favorite background discussion between the U.S. and the uh, Russians as to whether that spacecraft, the one you see there, with the solar panel slightly overexposed. So in the video, you can see the snowstorm of coolant freezing in the vacuum as it escapes from the uh, coolant loops, um, whether they can use that to safely return home. Because without coolant, you know, the, remember the biggest thing in space is not things getting cold. The whole Apollo 13 soap opera is very, very atypical because normally the problem in space is to get rid of heat given that you can't do it by convection or conduction. There's only one way to get rid of excess heat in space, and that is by radiation and Planck's laws. So you need to have a good air conditioning system, which means you need a, a mechanism with pumps and electricity and power to move coolant through parts of a spacecraft that you need to cool, and you need to run that coolant through a radiator which basically is a big flat plate. It may have corrugations, but it's basically a big area that then uh, dumps that excess heat as infrared radiation into the background of the very, 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 very cold of uh, 2.7 degrees Kelvin of dark black space. Without those two components, a fluid to move the heat from where you don't want it to the radiator and the radiator to get rid of it, in space, things tend to heat up as opposed to cool down. So without coolant, the astronauts could basically, when they're undergoing you know, a reentry, which heats the heat shield to several thousand degrees, and they're in terms of specific attitudes to the sun that does not allow them to like hang out in the shade of anything. Um, and they have computers on board that are very sensitive to temperatures and do not want to be above a certain uh, uh, temperature, otherwise they don't function uh, reliably. All of that is is part of the calculation going on behind the scenes as to whether that Soyuz spacecraft, which I think is number 22 in the lineup, which brought up uh, Russians and Americans several months ago, whether that spacecraft still docked to the International Space Station could be used in an emergency to evacuate the crew as a space taxi and take them home. It might take them home, but it may not take them home in very good condition, or it may take them home and then the computers, because they're overheating, will fail. And the, in other words, you can see there's all kinds of downside scenarios to not having a fully functioning spacecraft. So, so far, the Russians and the Americans, NASA and Roscosmos, have not said anything about the analysis. All they've said is, they're looking at alternatives, like sending up the next Soyuz uh, from the assembly line, number 23. But now we see there from that headline and that story, which if you click on it, there's a whole back story on this. Um, they, the, the, the next scheduled flight of the Soyuz 23 was going to be March. They seem to be able to move that up like about a month, but not 
that's not really significant given that this is still the latter part of December. So you've got all of January and then you've got a lot of February. And so tonight, the crew literally do not have a means of escaping the International Space Station if they should need to and of getting safely home. Now, this is a situation which has never, ever occurred in the history of the International Space Station going all the way back to when it was first put in place. The first uh, segment was lofted into orbit in, I believe, November of 1998. What does this mean? Well, because the space station is made of compartmented segments and each one has a you know, a, a door, a lock. Uh, it means if there was something that would happen, like another meteor would slice through one segment of the space station, they could simply seal it off. They have a storm cellar for radiation. They've got plenty of food and water and all that on board. They could last for six to eight months if there was no other visits. So it's not that they're in immediate danger. It's just that in a worst-case scenario, abandoned ship, they could not tonight on the station abandon ship because that taxi that you see spewing coolant is not a reliable means of transportation. So stay tuned. Now, you know I said last week uh, in somewhat strong terms that I find this all extraordinarily coincidental. And I'm really wondering if someone is kind of uh, turning up the metaphorical heat and this was and is a warning to NASA, do not release the extraordinary high resolution, extraordinary high color of the real Artemis imagery of the moon and what's on the far side and it's on the near side. In fact, all over the moon, this extraordinary ancient glass layered dome, because if you do... Um, that's a nice space station you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Or Now, can I prove that? No, of course not. But given that we are so far down the road of extraordinary, never-before-seen-or-experienced politics at every level of our society and our technological civilization and our political discourse and uh, operations... Um, given how much in history has been expended to keep what is on the moon and what's really in the solar system secret, and you know my, my thinking that this is the prime reason why John Fitzgerald Kennedy was killed, and Robert and I are going to go through that tonight, and I haven't compared notes with him lately. I don't know whether he agrees with me or not. I think the evidence that I've assembled independently uh, warrants that conclusion that this was the ultimate sin when against the will of the Nazis that took over NASA in Operation Paperclip after World War II, the President of the United States was in essence turning around and was proposing to give um, what was on the moon jointly to the Soviet Union, to the Russians, who of course were the bitter enemies of Nazi Germany in World War II. Um, I think that was a bridge too far. And again, we're going to spend a lot of the evening talking about why John Kennedy was killed, not just how, but why, 
that will lead us, loop us back from 1963 to 2022, which will be exactly 60 tetrahedral years since Kennedy was murdered. And given that these people can't go and do anything without a ritual, it's just possible that our conversation tonight is kind of like the penultimate conversation we'll be having one year from now, when in 2023, on the 60th anniversary, maybe finally the full disclosure of what happened to John Kennedy and why will be revealed. That will be part of a very interesting discussion we're going to be having with Robert very shortly. Item number two. Apropos of this, we've all been waiting, biting our fingernails and calling all our sources and every day trying to figure out what's going on, what's going on. The President of the United States uh, yesterday finally signed the 2023 Defense Authorization Act. And there's all kinds of reasons why there was some discussion. Was he going to sign it? Was he going to, uh, you know, make a big deal out of some parts of it that he doesn't agree with? Uh, basically, the uh, the COVID uh, vaccination part, which the Republicans insisted be struck from the bill, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it turns out that despite all the downsides and some of the wording from the White House in the press release about the signing and the disagreements, president did sign the bill and of course this audience is well aware that one of the key reasons is that contained in this authorization there is startling language now law that allows insiders in the pentagon the security agencies in the contractor pool at nasa specifically from my perspective any of these people that have access to evidence of extraterrestrial activity or presence in the solar system are now allowed by law with zero repercussions to take it up the chain of command and make it public to the appropriate Pentagon office and the congressional committees which are in charge of the current UAP UFO investigations up to and including, of course, this new panel, which NASA itself has formed to basically look seriously at the potential are is the UAP UFO phenomenon in some aspect extraterrestrial itself. We know now, based on decades of our research, that there are ruins of ETs all over the solar system. Which is why maybe item number one, someone is outside the bounds now of the law, just reminding these NASA people, that's really a nice space station. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it. We shall see as the new year progresses, as the new month progresses, as we move in one week into 2023, what in fact comes of this law and if we suddenly have a lot of interesting new data on the table regarding what NASA knows about extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial artifacts and ruins, including this extraordinary ancient glass dome all around the entire moon. Which brings me to item number three. 
Um, several months ago, as you know, uh, back in the summer, um, NASA launched the extraordinarily delayed and extraordinarily uh, expensive Webb Space Telescope. Ten billion dollars buys you, it turns out, a lot. Well, one of the prime targets that I've been focusing on is mentioned very carefully in item number three, because that is the story about the first look that Webb has now had of these seven extraordinary uh, exoplanets orbiting a star 39, twice 19.5, light years away from Earth, seven trahedral uh, hyperdimensional physics planets orbiting this red dwarf star. And they all seem, in our model, to have been moved there from somewhere else and assembled as a giant cosmic Disneyland of planets with diverse environments, diverse atmospheres, diverse living conditions, maybe diverse cultures, all in one system located not just 39 light years away, but located in such a way that when we look at the TRAPPIST-1 system, which is a technical name uh, named after the observatory that found them uh, several years ago, because they all cross the disk of the star around which they're orbiting. That's called an eclipse or an occultation. If you were on a planet in the TRAPPIST-1 solar system, 39 light years away, you would be able to look at the Earth's solar system and our sun and see our planets tracking across the, the visible disk of our star, which means we have two reciprocal solar systems that are linked optically because both systems with incredible low probability of this happening just by chance are aligned. And we can look at them and they can look at us and is there anybody home? Well, that item number three is the first blush of data from Webb's first look at the TRAPPIST-1 system and the atmospheres which swirl around those seven terrestrial-sized planets. Future work will allow them to look at much more uh, granular detail and what we're looking for, of course, are the signatures that scientists like uh, James Lovelock, who, who proposed the Gaia hypothesis for Earth, namely that life has remodeled Earth's atmosphere. So if you were a thousand light years away and could somehow look at the atmosphere of the Earth, you would know that there was somebody home because the atmosphere is basically a life-bearing atmosphere with tons of free oxygen, and all kinds of other molecules that only life can create. Well, the TRAPPIST observations by Webb in future months and years are going to try to do the same thing in reverse. NASA is going to try, the Webb telescope is going to try, the principal investigators are going to try to examine those planets as they trip across their background star and look at the spectral changes in the planetary atmospheres as each one crosses the stellar disk of the star that they all orbit. Seven Earth-like planets within a space smaller than the distance from our sun to Mercury. This, to me, looks like an extraordinarily engineered system. Back to Arthur C. Clarke, 
any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and the same kind of technology that can move planets around and create an artificial Disney park of seven habitable worlds um, could also, of course, put a glass dome around the moon. Which brings us to number four. Um, when I look back at the Artemis database, and I looked at the connection uh, to the Alan Bean gallery. Remember, Alan Bean is the uh, lunar module pilot uh, who, on Apollo 12, navigated the uh, lunar lander to and from the moon when Pete Conrad, who was the commander, was in the left-hand seat or left-hand uh, berth uh, driving the ship. It was uh, uh, Bean was doing the navigating and calling out the readouts and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, Bean, when he came back, he quit NASA in the 1990s and became, 1980s actually, and became a full-time fine artist, painted, as I've said over and over again, his experiences and those of the other astronauts upon the moon until he died, which was in uh, May of 2018. His work in the 90s took an extraordinary transition from the moon looking kind of like the NASA photos, dull and gray and lifeless and dead, to taking on what he actually calls in one of his paintings in his gallery, a Monet-like moon. And so what I've done is I put a comparison of one of Bean's representations of the moon uh, together with uh, the actual Artemis moon. That's a uh, frame grab from one of the uh, GoPro video uh, videos that were shot uh, in the, about the same geometry as the spacecraft was rounding the moon and coming home to splash down uh, on Earth a few days later. And the coincidence of colors and what Bean says about that painting, the one on the left, you'll find in gallery number two. Just look for that moon, that uh, gibbous moon, with Earth light on the right and sunlight on the left, which was the phasing of the moon when the uh, Apollo 12 expedition was coming home. They were about an hour out from the moon, leaving the moon's sphere of influence, heading to Splashdown on the Earth three days later. And he has a whole rap in his caption as to why he kept tossing aside and putting away his earlier representations of what the moon looked like to him. And uh, we won't go into it tonight, but in fact, he makes this comment toward the end of that long, long explanation in gallery number two that uh, for this painting, for that he basically finally decided and got around to painting the real moon. And that can conveys a multitude of meaning if you had been following any of our uh, programs over the last several months or at least weeks. And if you listen to the show we did last Sunday, we will replay on Christmas night tomorrow night. All of which brings us now to Robert Morningstar. Uh, Robert is a really interesting guy. Um, he is a self-proclaimed civilian intelligence analyst. He's definitely an investigative journalist, and he also is a psychotherapist, currently living in New York City. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. 
He graduated many years ago from the Power Memorial Academy and was a New York State Region Scholar at Fordham University, where he received a degree in psychology. While at Fordham in 69, which of course was the year that we put human footsteps back on the moon in the modern era, Robert participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Naval-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. And there's a whole bunch more in his bio, which you can read on the other side of midnight. Um, I want to focus tonight on Robert's extraordinary, individual, unique, and salutary research into, A, why was Kennedy killed? And B, how was it accomplished? And as with all good forensic stories and investigations, it is not a simple matter of A follows or proceeds B, proceeds C, et cetera, et cetera. It actually gets very, very, very complicated. And so what we'll do is we'll introduce Robert at the end of this half hour, and we'll pick up the story from the beginning, beginning, at the beginning of the next segment. So Robert Morningstar, welcome to Christmas Eve on the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard, and I want to wish a very Merry Christmas to all our friends, to Keith, Kintia, Ron, and on behalf of my friend Jill, who's also my associate producer. I don't think I would be here um, without her help and that of many others, uh, and you all know who you are. Thank you for supporting uh, the Morning Star Report and the, the other side of midnight and the other side of the news, so thank you all. You're all dear friends, and I'm happy to be here to wish you all a Merry Christmas. Do you remember where you were, like I do, with incredible crystal clarity when John Kennedy was killed? Absolutely. I can even tell you the sentence that had just come out of my biology teacher's mouth. He had just said, gentlemen, alcohol is a depressant. Because we were studying biology, and we were studying... uh, the effects of drugs, alcohol, and uh, other medications. And he had just said that. Gentlemen, alcohol is a depressant. And the speaker, loudspeaker in the room, crackled. And I heard a man say, a man and a woman were seen running from the triple overpass. And then it crackled again. And we were like, what the hell is going on? And then the principal, Brother Lawrence Kelly, Irish Christian brothers, God bless them all, uh, he was the principal, and he came on, and he said, uh, gentlemen, there were no ladies in my school. Gentlemen, uh, the president of the United States has just been shot in Dallas, and we're going to turn on the news, and I ask you to stand and say a prayer for his safety. So they put this over the intercom. That's what you were listening to. Exactly, yes. Exactly. And then we, were, we arose, and we said a prayer uh, in unison, hoping for his survival. And then we were dismissed. So as you know, in New York, it was 1.30 in the afternoon. So we were dismissed about a quarter to two. And on the way downstairs, uh, it was a seven-story building, and five of the first five stories were for classrooms. We were going downstairs. And I remember, and this is ironic. This is very ironic. There was a, a student named Vincent Tote, and he was a classmate of mine, but we weren't in the same class. But... He opened the door on one of the floors as I was going down, and with a very, very forlorn look on his face, he just said, 
the president is dead. And that was an utter shock. And I just continued down the stairs, caught the bus going home. It was a beautiful, beautiful spring-like day in, in New York City that day. I will never forget it. And that's how it began. But it actually began for me about, oh, five years earlier. For me, uh, I'll say... Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what. We're at the bottom of the hour. That's the perfect place to stop. Okay, very good. I remember vividly where I was with just as much as verisimilitude. But I couldn't walk home. I had to take a bus. And that was the longest bus ride with a whole bunch of total strangers crying that I've ever taken. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest tonight, Robert Morningstar, the story of his research into why John Kennedy was killed and how he really died. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Christmas Eve 2022. It, it may seem as a kind of a bizarre program to do for Christmas Eve, but I wanted to do this tonight because without John Fitzgerald Kennedy, we would not now know what is waiting as the most extraordinary Christmas present of all on the moon and in the rest of the solar system. Things that will change life for the better, called humanity back to what it was supposed to become a long, long time ago, which will make humans act toward humans as humans once again. So many implications that we've, we've never really covered. We've got to do a show where we lay all this out. But without John Kennedy and the unique thing that John Kennedy did as a hallmark memento of his brief administration why would anyone care who killed john kennedy tonight 
the two are inseparably, at least in my mind, connected. Anyway, Robert, please continue. Well, I was saying that um, quite literally my infatuation with John F. Kennedy began in 1958 when I first saw him on television on a um, press conference. might have been Meet the Press. And uh, then there were uh, other television. I started to follow him, basically. I never followed a politician, you know. I can remember in 1956 in that election, I didn't like either candidate because both of them were bald. (laughs) 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 Prejudices of an eight to ten year old boy. Adley Stevenson and Eisenhower were both bald. So, like, yeah, I I want a president with hair. So I started watching John Kennedy because he struck me, first of all, the way he sat in a chair. And then the way he spoke. And then, of course, his looks. And, of course, I was, uh, you know, that was the age of heroes, the 1950s, growing up with heroes. And Flash Gordon was one of my heroes. And when I saw John Kennedy and started to listen to him speak, and later on when he introduced the idea of the the new frontier and the space age, I thought, "This this guy has that charisma, the same charisma that Flash Gordon had. But uh, he had that unusual way of speaking, which is not a Massachusetts accent. The only person who's told the truth about John Kennedy's accent is the great uh, Irish-American writer, Mary McCrory, who picked up on the same thing I did. And she said, oh, that phony Kennedy accent, they're they're imitating the English accent because they wanted to be uh, high society. So... Everybody says the Massachusetts accent, but actually Joe Kennedy took his sons to England to be Anglified, to rise in society, in American society. But the other part of it well, is wait, that, no, but wasn't wasn't John the, the you know senior the father actually the ambassador to the court of St James for a while? That's what I'm saying. He he took the whole family there, and he educated them in English manners and diplomacy. Do you know? John F. Kennedy was doing errands, like 007 errands for his father when his father was ambassador. He did spying uh, trips into Nazi Germany, but he also uh, did um, mercy work. There was a, a ship that was torpedoed and sunk and survivors wound up in Ireland and John Kennedy was sent by his father he was about 17 or 18 years old. He was sent as his father's emissary to uh, to give them uh, rescue and uh, provide facilities, uh, lodging, and then shipping the survivors back to the United States. He had run-ins with the Hitler Youth in, uh, in his trips to Germany, and he saw what Nazism was from the get-go. So he, his father, his family, on top of having lost his brother, Joe Kennedy, in a terrible uh, Air Force uh, disaster, uh, they hated the Nazis, you know, and they tried to warn, Joe Kennedy tried to warn Eisenhower very early on about the villains in what we're going to talk about today, and that is uh, specifically Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, who took over they were the Nazis that took over the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department, and from there the tentacles went on. Alan Dulles actually helped a lot of the paperclip Nazis come to the United States. So Joe, Joe Kennedy, senior, 
who hated the Nazis because of the loss of his senior, his oldest son, Joe Jr., who was supposed to be the president. John took up the mantle after Joe was killed. But um, Joe Sr. approached Eisenhower and he said to him, listen, don't, don't take on the Dulles brothers. Don't take on John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. They are Nazis. I exposed them in 1940. They raised Hitler to power. They were working for the Union Bank as attorneys, and they were arrested in 1940s for breaking the Trading with the Enemies Act, which goes back to World War I. Once the war was declared in Europe, um, Germany was technically the enemy. And no American companies were supposed to do any business with them. But Union Bank of New York, headed by Prescott Bush and um, assisted by the Dulles brothers, kept funneling money into Germany to help sustain uh, Hitler. So Joe warned him. He said, if you take these guys on, they're going to betray you. They're going to stab you in the back. They're going to take over operations and they're going to start operating independence. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Do we have any reference for that? In other words, is that part of a public record somewhere? It is in Joe Kennedy's biography, which is very, very hard to get. It's called The Fruitful Bow. Mm. It's a limited edition book that he wrote uh, as as, uh, his memoirs and that's where he cites that uh, admonition that he gave Eisenhower. And Eisenhower didn't listen. And by 1956, uh, I think the writing was on the wall. By then, the tentacles of the Fourth Reich had spread into almost every um, department as far as... Well, we the, made this Faustian bargain with the paperclip crowd, the Nazis, for, yes. in, in terms of NASA and rocketry and engineering, because, of course, of the threat of, of Stalin and the Soviet Union and thermonuclear war and the need for a deterrent and ICBMs and all of that. So it was like it all came, you know, part and parcel with importing a whole bunch and far more than just a couple, three hundred. I mean, there were thousands of Nazis that spread throughout the government as well as private industry. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, there was a third sibling of the Dulles family, and it was a woman. Her name was Eleanor Dulles. And of all people to choose to be in charge of the Marshall Plan and the dissemination of the Marshall Plan funds, Eleanor Dulles became the director of the Marshall Plan in post-war Europe. And when she retired in 1951, she was known as the Queen of Berlin for having helped Berlin survived. Here's another little interesting fact. We all know about the Berlin airlift and the great compassion and rescuing of of the Germans against the blocks, the Soviet bloc. The planes were flying in every day with tons of food and coal and clothing and fuel, but they weren't going home empty. They were going home with the paperclip Nazis that Dulles was helping, along with the Catholic Church, uh, helping a lot of Nazis. Well, wasn't it essentially the whole Galen rat line? Yes, Galen and, uh, let's not forget, uh, Werner. Because Galen and Werner had been brought together in 1943 with the amalgamation of rocket science 
and secret technology with the spy network. And that's told in Albert Spears inside the Third Reich. That's where I picked up on the name of the CIA, where it came from, why it's called Central. It comes from the term middle work. That's the, mm. the name they gave the amalgamation of rocket science and spying and espionage and uh, national security in 1943. So I always ask people, why do you think we're not, they don't call it the United States Space Agency or the United States Intelligence Agency? Because the Germans refused to work for any organization that had the word United States in it. So that's uh, another aside. So Joe tried to warn him, and when he saw that uh, that uh, Nixon was going to be the next president, uh, Joe had uh, John took up the mantle and had to defeat him because uh, he was Nixon was hand in glove with with that. Uh, that group, that power group, let's call it that. So Joe, uh, you know, Joe always wanted to have uh, one of his sons become president of the United States, and he actually sacrificed three. Joe died in the war. John and Robert were killed when they ran for president. And uh, it's my hope that they did not die in vain. You know, you use the term Faustian, a Faustian bargain. Mm. And uh, you know what? Honestly, I hope it turns out to be Faustian because what people don't know is that in the end, Faust redeemed his soul. In every rendering of the story of Faust that we have seen come out of Hollywood for the last 50 years, the devil always wins. But in the real telling of the Faust story, particularly in the German version in the 1920s, Faust redeems himself at the end through love. There's a very famous movie. Well, maybe not that famous. It's famous to me. Mm -hmm. um, Set in New England called The Devil and Daniel Webster from the 1940s. Oh, yes. And in it, the Webster defends the victim that Satan is about to make the bargain with. And he legally gets him clear. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, the guy had made the bargain with the devil, yes. and then yes. he was uh, on trial for it. So yep. there are very, there's a lot of good uh, – it's a very good theme, but let us say – let me say clearly, Goethe's Faust, Faust redeems himself through love, and the archangel Michael manifests. At the end of the movie, the, the German silent film, Mephistopheles comes to claim his soul, and Michael the archangel grabs him by the neck. He said, no, you lost. You lost because love conquers all. It's a, a very beautiful telling of the story. You know, I've wondered uh, for decades now why it was that Grumman, uh, in the form of a guy, a senior executive of the Grumman Aircraft Corporation, one afternoon at CBS came over to me and he said, uh, uh, Dick, he said, uh, I'd like you to do the section of the lunar module press book uh, on the moon, why we're going, what's there, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder it was because I was such a pest around CBS telling everybody who would listen, producers and Cronkite and, you know, enemies and friends alike, why John Kennedy's singular mission to go to the moon was the most important thing, not only that his administration had ever done, but mm-hmm. any administration had ever done. And believe me, I was a lone voice in the wilderness. They mm-hmm. all looked at it as simply a crass political move having to do with the Cold War, nothing bigger, nothing more. And I knew nothing 
about what was on the moon and what's in the solar system at that point. I was a babe in the woods, and I just wonder if, if my allegiance to Kennedy's vision, because, of course, he was building on things he knew that he couldn't tell anybody about because nobody would believe them, and they came from the early machinations in Project Corona of the yes. CIA. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, which was also a DOD uh, project. You know. Yeah, well, it became a joint thing with the Air Force because the Air Force yeah. had the rockets. The CIA yeah. had the, the smarts, the brains, but the Air Force had to be the ones to carry it out if they could. Yeah. Yes. Now, do you know that there was a lunar counterpart to Corona that was proposed in the beginning right after um, um, uh, Sputnik? And I can't find any trail... It all ends. It begins and ends at JPL. But I have a feeling that this was how John Kennedy knew we had to go to the moon. And then ultimately, he knew we had to go together as humanity. And that's why they killed him. And the secret project, and I can't find, if anybody in the audience knows anything more, please reach me. I'm well you know, available on the web. The project, Robert, was called Project Red Sox. And why do you suppose... I've never heard of that one. Ah, exactly. It was a secret... I have heard about the Army project to build a a lunar base. Yeah, this was was General Trudeau and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oh, Paola's friend. um, Colonel Corso. Colonel Corso. Yes. No, this was a secret JPL unmanned robot to basically, like Corona, send film into space. Mm-hmm. But instead of doing it in Earth orbit, it was going to send the spacecraft carrying film, a film camera, not, not television, not telemetering and all that, in a looping trajectory around the far side of the moon, take a huge number of incredible images, return the capsule to Earth, enter and develop the film owners, just like Corona, and the project was called Project Red Sox. Now, a few days ago, I had a sudden incredible brainstorm. I said to myself, if this was Kennedy's back door to finding out what the CIA originally had intuited was on the moon through Corona, would that be the answer to the mysterious name? So, of course, you can Google anything, and guess who was the number one fan of the baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. John F. Kennedy. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. That's what I was going to say. He probably gave it the name. That's why he did it, because they were the underdogs. We were Mm -hmm. the underdogs, and this was, I'm telling you, there's a whole chapter of history out there, or more than one, about Project Red Sox, because I think that he quietly enacted it, and that's how he knew he Mm -hmm. had to share this information as to what's really on the moon with the whole of humanity, starting with our arch enemies, the Russians. And he convinced Khrushchev, who initially was totally, totally against the idea, and then suddenly caved. And, you know, within weeks of Kennedy's death, they put Khrushchev under house arrest, got rid of him, because he and Kennedy had this deal to make the human race whole. Yes, indeed. As I said on the show before, I remember when Khrushchev 
uh, was deposed because it happened during the seventh inning stretch of the seventh game of the 1964 World Series between the Yankees and the St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, my God. I remember that so vividly. Uh, seventh inning of the seventh game, which the Yankees lost, sadly. <laughs> See, I initially was, was, was an Eisenhower fan. I was definitely mm-hmm. against Kennedy and Kennedy being elected and all that. Mm-hmm. Until he made the move on the moon and Apollo. And that yes. caused me to reassess because he was really a rabid anti-communist and, you know, almost like a, like a visible McCarthy at some level. And, you know, mm-hmm. his, his brother and, uh, you know, who became attorney general. In other words, I was not a fan of the Kennedy, you know, dynasty. Right. But then as Apollo began to matriculate mm-hmm. and I began to, well, I got deeply immersed in it all because of CBS, you know, being tapped on the shoulder. And then, of course, in, in years and years later, I realized, oh, my God, this, of course, how he had to know what was there and why he was. He took a 180 degree stance from having to win the race with the commies to sharing what was there. And that, of course, was the thing the Nazis could not abide because they wanted right. it all for themselves. Not even Americans are supposed to know what's out there tonight. Right. So we got about ten minutes. So let's pick up your 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 early years. We're looking at Kennedy as this interesting politician who was dipped. Yes, yes, and uh, he had vitality. <clears throat> I mean, he's he always used to talk about vim and vigor. <laughs> yes, and vim and vigor. The difference between vim and vigor: vigor is a physical energy, and vim is a mental energy. You're having enthusiasm for your your projects and. Uh, so I've always tried to maintain a high level of both vim and vigor in my work. But um, I kept following him. And then during the campaign, I, I tell people, look, there was no Internet in 1960. And the campaigns were mainly pamphlets and uh, mailings and brochures. And buttons. And, don't forget the buttons. And the buttons. Yes, yes. So I climbed the towers of the west side of Manhattan, 15, 12-story, 15-story buildings, level by level, floor by floor, door by door, dropping off pamphlets because the um, the local uh, Democratic uh, Election Committee opened an office right here on on Amsterdam Avenue and 92nd Street, and they enlisted us uh, local kids to be pamphleteers. So I really worked really hard in that campaign. And John Kennedy actually appeared on uh, 91st Street. 91st Street and Broadway, he gave a speech uh, on Halloween night before that election. So I was very involved in the campaign and, uh, of course, uh, most thrilled that he won because we had a young president who had hair. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of hair. He was handsome. He was charming. To say nothing of Jackie. Uh, Jackie was beautiful, of course, but they they had they had class, and that was a good thing in those days, you know. Well, they transformed the White House. I mean, remember the CBS special where she did all the redecorating, and then then I saw that Charles saw Collingwood, that. you know, it was black and white television back then, but it radiated something different than any previous politician I'd casually looked at. Certainly, the so-called moribund years of, of Eisenhower. 
Yeah. I remember the, uh, well, you know, anytime a, a president gets elected, you, you get the comedians to come out. And there was a guy named Vaughn Meter. Vaughn Meter. Vaughn Meter used to come out and speak like John F. Kennedy and talk about uh, the toys in the bathtub and, uh, you know, the the little rubby du- rubber ducky is mine. The other toys of Car- Carolyn's. And then there was a... a did, 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 you get the, uh, did you get the LP record, Vaughn Meter? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but the one that got me was somebody was uh, satirizing Jackie Kennedy, uh, leading the tour through the White House and leading the uh, the reporter and saying, well, this is the Lincoln bedroom where President Lincoln slept. Then let's go on. Oh, and this is the blue room where President Blue slept. <laughs> Oh, the mockery was was Not to mention Jose. Do you remember who the correspondent was on that special with Jackie Noidas? I think he just said Charles Collingwood. Charles Collingwood. Now, why is that name an important name you should remember? Oh, I don't know. I just remember he. Charles Collingwood did the stunning CBS special on Stonehenge. Oh, I saw that one too. And, And you know what? That one struck me. Oh, that was yeah. the first time that they made these. I was so lucky when CBS picked up the phone because anybody – I mean, I actually worked for all three of the networks, but I loved CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, heavy, heavy ritual symbology there because yeah. it was – it was. I mean, Severide, you know, even in his cup when he was sitting at the bar, I remember one night we're going on and I'm trying to impress upon him – you know, the the central feature of Heinlein's The Man uh, Who Sold the Moon. And several, I mean, I got to talk to all these guys. Well, you know, the, the Stonehenge uh, uh, documentary was fantastic. Uh, eye-opener for me. Made me dream of going to Stonehenge. And ultimately, in the 1990s, my dream came true. Through the 90s and the 2000s, I, was, I had the privilege of being at Stonehenge seven times on the summer solstice and to see the sun rise over the heelstone in addition to other uh, privileges that I received there that um, initiated me actually quite literally into the Arthurian mm. legacy. I was a, I was chosen to draw the sword from the stone at Stonehenge in a ceremony conducted by the ancient Druid order of the universal bond. And that was in 1997. And the reason I was honored was for all the work that I'd done up to that time on the JFK assassination. And, uh, well, John F. Kennedy, unbeknownst to many people, really had a, a deep connection to the Druid Order. He was a very good friend of Winston Churchill. Churchill kind of took him under his wing and introduced him around and um, you know Kennedy being a descendant of the old high kings of Ireland is steeped in in Celtic uh, tradition and so mm, I'm following that tradition well you know there's a whole ET aspect to the Tawatha the Danon etc etc yes so and and one wonders whether that family see what really struck me that there were like the Kennedys were living two separate lives and almost never the twain shall meet except it met in Apollo under, under John. 
His father, Joe, when he was appointed ambassador to England, you know where he spent most of his time? At the British no, Museum. Oh, the British Museum. It's the British. What was he doing in the British Museum? Literally months, months, not at the residence, not at the, in, at the embassy, but at the museum. He was looking into ancient history. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I, John was, was part of those conversations. Oh, absolutely. Had to be. So let's, uh, let's go back to the, um, the history there. Yeah, we got uh, about two minutes until the top of the hour. So Okay, so anyway, I worked very hard for the election of John F. Kennedy. I was very happy with his election and where it seemed that he was taking the country. Uh, look, all you have to know about what John F. Kennedy did to the country was look at the crowd that greeted him in Dallas the day he arrived. Millions of people were there. And the, it's ironic that the last words uh, he heard before his death was uh, Nellie Connolly telling, turning to him and telling him, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. Mm. And shots rang out. So this killing of President Kennedy was, was a betrayal, not only of the United States, but it was a betrayal of the state of Texas. They, they took the fall. They chose Dallas, and the poor people of Dallas had to suffer the stigma for years and years and years of bigotry against Texas and against Dallas. Well, and you so can't say that Dallas the, that the Dallas Police Department was an exemplar of, of you know, Boy Scout, you know, whatever. Except that the Nazis and the, and the mafia had infiltrated it, and that's where we get into the relationship. Jack Ruby and J.T. Tippett, which we'll talk upon uh, later. But after after the break, I would really like to go and reveal to uh, people how I had a visit from the ghost of Christmas past. And it's uh, a turning point in my life and integral to this whole saga. Okay, well, hold it there because we are at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning, my sole guest, unless we have surprises in the third hour, and at Christmas, you never know. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're going through why 60, technically it's 59 years, but, you know, it's in the window now, 60 tetrahedral years. Am I crazy or am I thinking that on the ritual on the 60th year, which is literally one year from now, there are going to be some astonishing stunning revelations in the whole Kennedy saga and who knows a year from tonight where we're going to be in terms of what's really on the moon here on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland we shall return midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday, December 24th, Christmas Eve, 2022. Gosh, you know, Kennedy, the moon, I wonder if he was behind Project Red Sox. You know, he had this weird, very wacky sense of humor. Project Red Sox, an unmanned journey with a robotic spacecraft in the image of Corona with film to loop around the moon in a free return trajectory and photograph the wondrous glass-like domes on the far side of the moon. Did it happen? Did he name it? Will we ever know? Anyway, Robert, back to what you wanted to say. You say you have been visited by yes. the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, the ghost of Christmas past. I've often said that the saddest Thanksgiving of my life was the Thanksgiving of 1963, which happened just six days after President Kennedy was uh, was killed and dead and buried. And the saddest Christmas was that same year. Yeah, yeah. And um, many Christmases went by. And then in the 1980s, um, I had... Um, Established myself as a Tai Chi master in the Yang family tradition. And on March 30th of 1981, I arrived at Oberlin College to teach a course for the East Asian Studies Department there. And during the day, I was teaching the course. And that afternoon, there was a radio playing in another room. And I could overhear it. It it, In the middle of my class, I hear this radio. And the radio said that President Ronald Reagan had been shot. And I said to the people, why are you so surprised? You know, are you surprised? For months and months and months, I've been hearing people say, oh, Ronald Reagan, somebody should shoot that guy. So now you have it. Why are you surprised? And it was a terrible, terrible day. I loved Ronald Reagan since I saw him as the Gipper, you know. I mean, he is an icon as far as athleticism is concerned. Uh, he really defined it. Well, have you read any of his diary? I've uh, read some of it. I've read uh, uh, biographies of it. And See, what's reading... so interesting is in, in an era where there is politicians and then there's statesmen, Ronald Reagan, this actor, this guy that everybody was down upon, he was, you know, I mean, the, the, the contest between him and Carter, 
You know, mm-hmm. it was it was basically he's this mindless Hollywood actor. He doesn't have a brain cell, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He falls asleep in meeting all the terrible, terrible things. And then years and years later, after he is quietly passed on from Alzheimer's, we get this diary and it's in his own handwriting. Mm-hmm. And you find all these amazing thoughts and connections and projections and three-dimensional thinking about the role of the United States, the shining city. In other words, the Reagan that we saw was the real guy. And that's such a precious commodity in this facile world of politics. I wonder if you've read the diary, does he mention his sighting, two sightings of UFOs? Yes, of course. That's another thing that connects uh, Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. They were both intimately uh, involved in the UFO issue. But let me go back to this this day, the turning point of my life. I was 33 years old, and I arrived at Oberlin, and President Reagan shot. At the same time, I was reading C.S. Lewis's trilogy, Perilandra, which is specifically about what we're going through now. I I encourage you all to read Perilandra. So that night at 10.30 at night, it's been a terrible day. I mean, I taught my classes, but, you know, what happened in Washington had the whole world and us astir. And I was walking across the bedroom that uh, in the in Spanish house at Oberlin. For any of you who are at Oberlin, you can go to Spanish house, go to the second floor, and find the room where this happened to me. So I had a room to myself. It had two beds with a night table between the two beds and a desk on the other side. It was a pretty long room. So I walked across the room, I turned off the light, and this thought struck me. Something evil is walking this planet and killing good men. And it's always the same story, a lone nut and a single gunman. And the reason I say that is, said that to myself was that I had seen the pictures of um, Hinckley. And when I saw the pictures of Hinckley, I looked at him and I said, damn, this guy looks like the twin brother of Mark Chapman. The guy who assassinated John Lennon is this too. This is really weird. You know, it's like a type. Are they finding a type and and sending them and meaning they, whoever the evil presence is, that's killing good men and using the lone nut single gunman theory to cover it all up. So I remember thinking that thought and um, going into bed and I always sleep naked if I can, if it's not, two degrees below zero outside. So I pull up the sheets and I'm lying there in the, in the light of the room because I was on the second floor and there was a street lamp right across, right on my sidewalk and shining into the room. So the room was illuminating. So I'm lying back in the bed and thinking, what's, what's going on in this world? What's going on in this place? And out of the corner of my eye, I saw something turn my attention to the, the right side where there was a wall, and right through the wall, this figure came through, and it was dressed in white from head to foot. And it started walking across the floor really, really slowly. And I'm looking at this. I'm I'm wide awake. I just laid down in the bed and pulled the covers. I'm not asleep at all. And I look at this white-robed figure come through the wall and start walking across the room in super slow motion and I start my body starts to go into 
Well, eventually it was panic. <laughs> but at that moment it was surprise. And then fear started to come in. And he's walking across the room very, very slowly. And I said to myself, these thoughts, I'm going to give you my thought train. I looked at this being and I said to myself, my God, this is the most powerful person that's ever walked the earth. And he kept walking and I said, and my body starts trembling and shaking, you know. Uh, and I said, oh man, he knows I'm scared, but he's trying not to scare me. He's approaching me with a Tai Chi walk. He knows I'm, I'm, I'm scared. And he keeps coming, goes, crosses the, the foot of the, fir, the, the second bed. And as he came closer and closer, my body and my mind split into mind, body, soul, and spirit. And my body went into absolute abject terror. Every muscle was quivering. Every bone was rattling. And he's coming across really slowly. And I'm saying, oh, man, he knows I'm scared, but he's giving my mind plenty of time to get, get ready for Can this. you see any expression of face or something? He had a funeral shroud. He had a white headdress that I thought was like an Egyptian pharaoh or Arabic. And he had a white cincture and a white robe and a white shroud over his face. And he came across the foot of my bed. And as he came, and now my heart is going. Boy. And I looked it down at my chest and I said, oh, my God, it feels like I've got concrete in my chest or my heart would explode. And I see him coming across the foot of my bed. And with every step getting closer, the dread, the fear, the terror, the panic got greater. But seven years before, I had been visited by a ghost of my Tai Chi master. And when he approached me, I got scared too. But when he approached me, he said, don't be afraid, Robert. Nothing can harm you. So I went back to that because that assurance was, Robert, Nothing can harm you. Don't be afraid. So I took that. And I seized that. And I started saying to this being, I love you, but I don't want to see your face. I love you, but I don't want to see your face. And I kept it. It just kept the mantra. So I surrounded myself in love. I kept sending love to this being while my body was in absolute panic. I could hear every cell in my body screaming. Mm. An audible sound. I mean, you know, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, when they blow up the planet, and he says, it's as if I heard three trillion voices crying out as one. Well, I had three trillion voices, and it was my mortality. And as he walked around the foot of my bed, I said to myself, this is death. This is death. This is why they find people dead in the morning and say, oh, this poor guy had a heart attack. And, of course, my heart is... Mm doing that so he's coming closer he turns the foot of my bed and i go oh my god this is antimatter if we touch oh i'm gone and this is a now now this is the scientist in me trying to explain to you an insight that i got as to how a ghost congeals and what technology may be used and years later i saw that white stuff again and that white stuff we used to call ectoplasm, but now we call it a scientific name. And it's called Beck, the Bose-Einstein condensate. 
I'm convinced, I'm convinced that this materialization that gave me the insight that it was some technology that can harness and coalesce the Bose-Einstein condensate to make a dead soul manifest. But it doesn't necessarily have to be antimatter. No, no, no. It's just like two... The the Beck concept came 20, 30 years later when I learned about that high-level physics. Mm -hmm. But as he's coming to my bed, he's right right now... Well, it's basically at a major elemental visible scale, the same kind of quantitized uh, quantum phenomenon that normally only takes place at the quantum level. This is a Mm -hmm. super, super, super quantum state where mega matter can can be coherent. It also involves super cold, and that's another thing I'll talk to address. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to. Well, I tell you, I was... Under normal... I was thrown into Antarctica naked, okay, that night? So let me just continue this. So he's approaching. Now he's at the side of my bed. He's by my thigh and by by my side. And he's looming over me. And he looks down. And I said to myself, if he lifts that veil, I'm going to die. And I said to him, listen, I'm strong. But please, please don't lift that veil. If you lift that veil, I think I'll die. And so what he did is he pressed the veil against his face and he leaned down over me. And if you put your hand three inches from your nose, that's how close he came to me. And he said to me, we don't want you speaking to people of what you know. Excuse me. No, no, that came much later. What he said to me was, behold my face, remember me. And I said to him, Imagine you're looking at a person's face through a veil, translucent veil, and he's three inches from your nose, and he says to you, behold my face, remember me. And I said to him, who are you? Who are you? Who could you be? Could you be the Christ? Could you be my soul? Could you be the soul of a Sufi master that I know? Who are you? But I I haven't seen you in so long. And I'm crying. I'm telling you this in a normal voice. Mm. But it was more like, who are you? So then he says to me again, behold my face, remember me. And again, I looked at his face and I knew I knew him. And I said, I know I know you, but I haven't seen you in so long. Who are you? And he said to me, we don't want you speaking to people of what you know. And I said, we? Where are you coming from? Are you threatening me? And he said, Lucifer has taken over Islam and is going to use it as his vehicle to destroy mankind. And I said to him, I understand. And when I said I understand, he just nodded. He stood up very slowly, just the same slow and stealthy walk. He turned around, went down the side of my bed, on the foot of my bed, And my body was electrified. The parts of my body that were closest to him were hysterical. And then as he walked by and passed and left, my right side started to calm down, but my thigh and my legs were screaming. Then he went by the foot of my bed, and as he passed my right foot and left, my right foot started to calm down, but my left leg was screaming. And as he went by my toes, my big toe calmed down. My second toe, my middle toe. And then 
the last closest part of my body to him was my pinky toe. And when he was going, my pinky toe was just screaming bloody murder right apropos. And he just kept walking and walking. As slowly as, as he entered, he walked right into the wall and disappeared. And when he disappeared, I bolted out of my bed. I was bathed in sweat. I was trembling in terror. And all I could say was, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that's all I could say. And I was in shock. I was in shock. And you were there all alone. And I was there all alone. And I was in shock for months and months trying to understand what this was about. But it ultimately turned out that it was guidance. I was, I was talking about things that were not complete. It was not time. And so I was silenced. I came to New York and I asked the I Ching about it. And the I Ching said, put this aside now. If you pursue this now, you will be exposing yourself to injury and possibly even death. In 10 years, you will know the whole story. So I accepted that and I went out of uh, public view. I stopped lecturing. I stopped traveling. I stopped uh, uh, doing, you know, personal appearances uh, around the country or teaching in colleges uh, other than the 90s when I went back and taught at Hunter College. But what had you but, been saying publicly? What I've been saying was that the the fight over religion is a neurolinguistic problem and that all three religions believe in one God and that they're basically all the same and just they make a different sound for their designation of God. And what he came to say to me was, no, 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 that's not true because there is a true God and there is a false God and they do have different names. And what he was saying to me was that a false God has taken over the world's religions and is trying to lead mankind to self-immolation. The long story made short is that in 1995, I was invited to go to Stonehenge by the Druid Order the first time. And at Stonehenge, the Druids, you know, we all arrived. We unpacked the trunks and started putting on their robes. And when I saw the robes, I realized, oh, my God. That was not Arabic. That was not an Egyptian pharaoh. That ghost was dressed like a druid, like a druid priest. And then the face came back to me. And the face was that of John F. Kennedy. But the reason that I did not recognize him was that the expression on his face was so grave, so stern, possibly angry, but not at me. I could not recognize it. What he said to me was the first was a request. Behold my face, remember me. The second was an imperative. Behold my face, remember me. And so that face was branded in my brain, branded in my soul. And for years and years I struggled with, what was that all about? Am I going to live my whole life with a big question mark over my head? What's going on? I should preface this uh, next part by telling you that I found out that the morning that I arrived at Oberlin College, the Western world's foremost expert on Islam had died typing a manuscript, and he typed till the last second of his life. 
His name was Professor Joseph Eliash. He was the Western world's foremost expert on Shia Islam, and he had been the counselor to President Carter during the hostage uh, crisis because he knew how Ayatollah Khomeini thought. So President Carter would say, Professor Eliash, if I do A, what will he do? Well, Mr. President, if you do A because of the Hadith and the Islamic law, he has to do B. And if you do C because of the Hadith and Islamic law, he will have to do D. So that was the counsel that he was offering President Carter. And of course, this is during the time of the famous October surprise with George Bush's secret SR-71 flight to Yeah, that Barbara's written the book about. Yeah, Barbara's uh, mentioned it several times. Well, it's all tied together. The upshot is this. In 1992, I discovered the doctrine of the Zapruder film. The Zapruder film is a consciously engineered mass hallucination. If a lot of people are watching it, it's a mass hallucination. If an individual is watching it, it's an optical illusion. And I was able to... Well, it's to very clever misdirection. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They turned at least five shots into two by cutting out at least 10 feet of film. But uh, I had been making eight millimeter film since the age of 10. That's when I bought my first movie camera. And then in 1963, my father asked me, what would you like for Christmas? And I said, I'd like... Dad, you really want to know? I'd like a Bell & Howell Electronic Eyes 8mm movie camera. Oh, I remember them. Well, that's the kind of camera that Abraham Zapruder had in his hand when he was shooting the, oh, the Zapruder film. So I knew the camera, and I knew its quirks, and I knew what it could do, including slow motion, regular speed, and frame by frame. You could shoot uh, three times the speed. You could do a slow motion movie. And the Zapruder film is shot in slow motion, but they've cut out so many feet of it and joined it so cleverly. I wonder why Zapruder shot it at high speed, because that's how you get slow-mo. Well, he knew it was going to be a short parade, I think. But uh, regardless of why he did it, he wasn't going to do it. You know, somebody called his office and said, hey, Tell Abe to get down there. The president's going to come around. Tell him to take his movie camera. And the secretary, who was a secretary to Abraham Zapruder, said that she recognized the voice to be that of Jack Ruby. So Ruby was involved in every aspect of this assassination. Oh see? So in 1992, a lot of people have been started saying, you know, the driver shot the president. And like, what? Come on. Yeah, I so saw I, those. I, There's terrible I have, videos. I happen now. to have a pristine copy, the best copy of the Zapruder film ever broadcast by your friends at CBS on hard copy, November 21st of 1991. I was home with the flu, and they said they were going to show it, and I just happened to throw a tape in there, with, the, and I had the best uh, VCR recorder of the time, the Panasonic. So I recorded it, and then in... in um, I guess it was March 28th, which was really, uh, it's, it's so synchronistic. March 28th of uh, 1992, I got to work and seeing the Zapruder film I started to see when I put it in slow motion. I started to see the splice mark going by and the anachronisms. And I started to see people who were in one frame disappear and then appear several frames later having crossed 75 feet of uh, 
of uh, Dealey Plaza space in about 18th of a second, you know? And um, Mm. so the temporal anomalies and uh, anachronisms became manifest. And I realized, oh my God, the whole thing is doctored. The president's limousine does not turn the corner. It's an optical illusion. Three motorcycles are seen to come down the street after turning on Elm Street. And while your eye is following the third motorcycle, they cut the film and they introduced the motorcyclist who was with the president. Because the first three motorcycles that turned the corner were not the president's um, guard. They were the vanguard of the pilot car, which came down first. And the pilot car was carrying Chief Curry and the Sorrells of the Secret Service and an FBI guy. And they were just clearing the area to see that everything was all right. So that has been cut out of the Zapruder film. But Zapruder, when he saw what they called the parade coming, he saw the motorcyclists. He started shooting when they were over there on Houston Street. One motorcyclist continues down Houston Street, three motorcyclists turn as your eyes on the third motorcyclist they cut the film and super and, and, and join it to the motorcyclist that was with the president so while you're looking at the motorcycles the car appears to turn the corner but if you go through this recruiter film frame by frame you'll see it goes from motorcyclist to car in the middle of the street and in another one the third car in the motorcade is up on the sidewalk. The right wheel is way up, and and this is because, in reality, the turn onto Elm Street is more than 90 degrees. It's more like a 110-degree turn. So the Secret Service driver, Greer, didn't know which street it was. He thought that the turn was, was actually the service road that leads into the Texas School Book Depository. But When he saw Elm Street, 110 degrees to his left, he whipped it around and the car, the limousine, the right tire struck the curb. And all the cars that were following him in train, they (laughs) approached the curb. And they all hit the curb. And the third guy, the Ford, uh, the Ford uh, four-door, that guy is up. You can see it. Right. So these are some of the, uh, anomalies that I started to pick up uh, in the Zapruder film, and that was my first um, claim to fame, pardon the expression, uh, where I, I rattled the whole JFK assassination community. In 1992, I went to Chicago, University of Chicago. I was invited to speak at the Midwest Symposium on Political Assassinations, and it was a, uh, a turning point. I was not allowed to present publicly that first year. I was allowed to address a room of 200 of the world's foremost experts on the JFK assassination. And that's when I dropped this bomb. But at the same time, up to that, you know, I'd been preparing for this, so I've been reading voraciously. And I looked around for pictures of Tibet, and I could only find one picture. And it bothered me. You know, like, why do we not know anything about this cop who's central to the whole, the whole uh, melodrama? So I started reading, and I read Jim Bishop's book, 
the day Kennedy was shot. And a friend of mine said to me, Robert, how did Tippett die? Well, I had read in the New York Times that Tippett had been shot in the eye, had been horribly disfigured, that he had been buried in a sealed casket, that nobody had been allowed to see his body because of the disfigurement. So I picked up Jim Bishop's book, which was right at hand, and I looked up Tippett in the index, and his death of Tippett. And when I went to that page, I was shocked to find that Tippett had been shot dead on the street by an assailant who drew on him. He got out of the car to talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it was Oswald because it wasn't Oswald. Right. He hey, got we're, out. We're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it there. Okay. My guest this morning is Robert Morningstar, and we're recreating how he went from being fascinated by John Kennedy to fascinated by how John Kennedy was murdered. And therein lies Revelations. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Tonight, as bumper music, in part, we're playing as a double entendre, the dark side of the moon. So, Robert is talking about how he first got intrigued with the nitty-gritty details, including a Dallas police officer named Tippett, who seemingly out of nowhere, as part of this unfolding 
nightmare soap opera is, quote, randomly killed by someone who may or may not be Oswald. Robert, pick it up there. Right. So the the killer killers, actually, of Officer Tippett, there were two men there. They always reduce it to Oswald, but let's get the story straight. When they took the bullets out of Tippett, he was shot four times, and there were two kinds of bullets, one from a revolver, or two from a revolver, and two from an automatic. Now, the important thing about the killing of Tippett is that he dropped on the street. He was shot in the torso twice on the right side in, in the rib cage. One bullet hit the button, a brass button in his tunic, and gouged uh, a slash across his abdomen. He fell on the street, and then uh, the assassin came over, put the gun to his head on the temple, and he fired a single shot. That is, this is key to the whole thing. So if you look, if you look at the items under my name on tonight's show, at the bottom you'll see a diagram. Uh, it's an autopsy diagram with a red arrow pointing from the zygomatic process. This is the bone that joins the orbit of the eye um, to the um, to the parietal bone. Do we have a number? Is that number four? I believe it's it's easy to recognize. It says Tippet Autopsy Bullet Track Morningstar Diet. That's right. That's right. Okay. It's number so, four. Right. So here's how the story goes. I want to remember a very important man who just passed away. David Lifton also devoted his life to this this uh, this case. And he wrote a book called Best Evidence. And I picked it up at that time. As I said, when I got involved, I said I need to know more. So I picked up that Best Evidence. And what David Lifton did was he took, he took the Warren Commission autopsy report and he extracted the, the description of the autopsy of the brain. And he took it to a surgeon at the University of California where he was studying. And he said, uh, doctor, I'd like you to read this autopsy report and I'd like you to tell me what you think caused this man's death. The doctor read the um, report, the extract, that uh, David Lifton presented to him. And he said, well, this man sounds like he was killed with an axe. And he said, what, with an axe? And he said, yes, read this section here. It talks about a parasagittal laceration through the right hemisphere of the brain. And when he, when I read that myself, and I read the description in the autopsy extract from the Warren Commission report describing the right hemisphere of the brain and the uh, damage done to it, including um, the, uh, the brainstem and the cerebral peduncles, uh, which is in, in the center of the, of the brain, I realized this can't be true. There was no right hemisphere of the president's brain. Everyone who was in Parkland saw uh, a skull with half a brain. It was vaporized. And even the, the CIA photo analyst who saw the uncut Zapruder film said that it was, it was horrific that he saw the president's head explode and there was a white flash of brain matter going vertically up into the air and then dropping down like rain um, on, on the, on the limousine. On the, on the trunk and the rear seats. Yes. Uh, that the, and it's just spread like a cloud. And you know what? the blood spilled out all over the trunk as well. 
I have found a, a snippet of film that hadn't been altered, and it shows it was basically waves of blood coursing over over the back of of the uh, of the trunk, and that's where Jackie Jackie was the only hero heroine in Dealey Plaza. She she her reaction was so quick. She was holding Jack. She slid over. These are things that are taken out of the Zapruder film. She was on the far left side and he was on the far right side. And after the first shot, when he said, my God, I've been shot. And then subsequently the throat shot, he started to gargle, gurgle. And Jackie said he was making some terrible sounds. So she slid over, put her arm around him and like, Jack, Jack, what's wrong? At that moment, he was struck by a fusillade. And that was the word. That was the word that uh, Walter Cronkite used, you know, fusillade. The fusillade is not one shot. No, it's not one shot. It's a firing squad, actually, what what you use the word for. So then Jack Kennedy was hit by at least three bullets, almost simultaneously, um, from the front and from the side. The, The right front opened up the skull. Immediately thereafter, another bullet from the grassy knoll entered the open wound and blew out the back of his head. And the piece of his, of, of his skull went flying back. Some of the brain matter hit a motorcycle policeman and another, the, the bone flew toward a man named Charles Brem, who was directly in line with, with the line of sight. And so how could they do that? How could they make it look like just two shots that did all that damage. Well, they took out at least 10 feet of film. And the way I described the optical illusion, how it was created, spread out your five fingers. And imagine you put scotch tape from one finger to another across the spaces. Now, instead of scotch tape, imagine that that's the Zapruder film. And the thumb is the first shot which occurred when the president was passing by the sign. He was shot in the back. He bolted upright in the car. He stood up and Zapruder saw him. Zapruder was shooting as the car went behind the sign. Zapruder testified to the Warren Commission that he saw President Kennedy's head pop up above the sign and then fall back down. Then the car crept out, crept out, really slowly rolling. That's when the shot hit him in the throat. And when you see the Zapruder film and study frame by frame, In the first frame, when you see the president after it passes the sign, you'll see that his hands are on his abdomen. His hands are down on his ribcage in his abdomen. And then a frame or two later, his hands shoot up to his throat. Why were his hands on his abdomen? His hands were on his abdomen because the bullet that entered his spine and through his back, descending at a 40 to 60 degree angle, went down into his body. And he felt it in the guts. Then the shot in the throat hit him in the, in the throat and his arms went to his neck. Now, they cut out this timing. They cut out the popping up of the head above the sign, right at the sign. And that is the most glaring edit. They've never been able to cover up, even with computer graphics. They haven't been able to cover up the, the terrible editing job that they did. They had to join. They cut the film right in the middle and they joined the sign. Then the car crept out. So, and you, and you see his reaction to the throat. So they said, no, the throat shot was the first shot. But the Secret Service men said, no, 
he said, I've been shot. And Arlen Specter took it on with, with uh, the Secret Serviceman, the driver, Greer, uh, in particular. And he said, you know, no, he couldn't have said anything. He was shot in the throat and his, his uh, larynx was torn. He couldn't have said anything. And he said, the Secret Serviceman both said, no. No, he said, oh, my God, I've been shot. And he said, no, he kidding me. He's, and then he said, he gets frustrated. He says to the Secret Serviceman, yeah. how can you be so sure of that? And the Secret Serviceman, I think it was Greer, said to him, he said it in a Boston accent. Mm. And at that moment, change of subject, you know, the questioning goes in another direction. So now we're looking at our hands with a Zapruder film strip, the original Zapruder film, right? First shot is the thumb. That's been cut. They cut uh, up to the part where he emerges from behind the sign. Two shots. Now you've turned two shots into, into one shot. Now the car proceeds. Connolly is hit. Kennedy is hit another time. At Z295, there is a visible condensation trail of a bullet that was seen by a Secret Service man named Glenn Bennett. Oh, I've seen that image. Yeah, I've, I've put it around a lot. At Z295, I picked this up in yeah, the Yeah, it's condensation yeah. from the shockwave. Condensation wave. trail. That was my first idea that the Zapruder film could have registered condensation trails left by the bullets passing through a very, very, um, very humid atmosphere where it had rained all night. So it was a lot of precipitation in the air. So I started looking for vapor trails and I found it at Z295. The bullet glanced off the side of the president's head and that's the real magic bullet. See, every good cover-up has, has, um, has an iota of truth. There was a bullet that hit both men and it was a bullet that hit the President Kennedy's skull on the right side and bounced off and just went on ricocheted and that's the one that went right through Governor Connolly. Now, Glenn Bennett saw this shot. He was in the, what they call the Queen Mary, the second car in the, in, in the motorcade. And he said, I saw a bullet strike the right side high of the president's head. That's a strange sentence. So I, I like to memorize strange sentences because they do say something. I saw a bullet strike the right side high of the president's head. So I found that vapor trail, and if you lay a ruler on the, on the incoming, the in-shoot, it goes right into Connolly. So now we are approaching the grassy knoll, and we have three fingers left, and that's where three shots arrived within one second of time, one and a half seconds at the most. So if you cut the space between your middle, the film between your middle finger and your ring finger, and you cut the film between your ring finger and your pinky, you've turned three shots into one event, which is that cosmic explosion of the brain and the head mm. at Z313. And that's how the optical illusion, optical illusion was created. But in recent years, I've uncovered, and we in the community have uncovered uh, some of the things that came out in 2017 are photographs of the limousine that show it riddled, peppered with bullet holes. A bullet came through the windshield. A bullet hit the molding uh, right in front of the driver, right where the mirror, where the mirror is uh, suspended. 
a bullet hit there and left an indentation in the chrome. The car had a roll bar, and that was hit, and there were two bullet holes in the sidewall of the limousine. Those pictures alone disprove the single gunman theory and the magic bullet theory uh, simultaneously. So, so the how key, are these other images then leaked out? Which other images? The other, all the bullet holes in the, in the limo. Oh yeah, well over the years, over the years, researchers have been investigating, going down to the National Archives, and you know. Yeah, the but if there was an effective did, vacuum cleaner operation, why is there anything to be found? Well, there was not an effective vacuum cleaner operation because you can never cover up everything and then um, people just stumble on, you know, they'll go to the National Archives and they'll ask for something and they'll get something else. This happened with a young fellow in, in Dallas. He went to the National Archives in 1998 and he said, I like the pictures of Tippett. So he gets the pictures, autopsy pictures of Tippett and when I looked at them, he showed them to me in Dallas, I saw the <laughs> it was the man who's presented to us as uh, John F. Kennedy. Folks, Officer J.P. Tippett bore such a close resemblance to President Kennedy. Is that, that uh, image number five? Uh, I included... It's a color view of... It says Officer Tippett made up to look like J.P. Yes, that's the autopsy. That's the cover-up. And as I was telling uh, Keith before the program, that photograph is an act of terrorism. It is an act of photographic terrorism to scare the hell out of anyone who looks at that picture. And what that picture is saying, be silent, little man. This is what we did to the president of the United States. Mm. And same thing will happen to you if you open your mouth. But the truth of it is, that's not the president of the United States. That's Officer J.D. Tippett who bore such a close resemblance to President Kennedy that his friends on the Dallas Police Department used to rib him and call him Jack and JFK. And Jack Ruby, his best friend, his best buddy, used to call him Mr. President. So when Jack Ruby says, I killed, I killed Oswald because he killed a good man like the president like that, he's talking about Tippett, the guy he used to call Mr. President. Hmm. Not talking about Jack. How Johnson. deep have you dug into Tippett's life? Oh, I've gone in pretty deeply. I've read uh, biographies, and I feel sorry for Tippett. Tippett was—I um, would have to say—he was a war hero. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. Tippett hmm. was at the Battle of the Bulge, and he was a shell-shocked soldier. And I've included in my items the psychological report after he was given a Rorschach test to enter the Dallas Police Department. And it's a very, very telling document. It shows that Tippett wasn't all there. Let me just put it kindly. So read it. It said that... Um, well, here's my dumb question. Okay. Was Tippett just a, a target of opportunity, a guy in Dallas on the police department who happened to look amazingly like JFK, or if you track back his life, was he in some other part of the country encouraged to move to Dallas, encouraged to join the force? In other words, were the chess pieces being arranged years before Kennedy's murder? Well, yes, 
yes and no. He actually got into the Dallas Police Department around 1952. Despite that psychological uh, evaluation, they, they took him because he was a good old boy. And so he, uh, he had a very interesting career. He got stabbed in the knee, which made him have a limp in his walk. He, um, he had a reputation for liking to shoot dogs people's dogs boom you know mm. so as i say in all kindness tip it wasn't all there but he got involved with jack ruby and it turns out that you know the story about 18 witnesses having been killed in two years after yeah the, sure yeah well i got my my investigation is like let me find out why these people were killed what they what were they talking about so well technically they're all dying and nobody knows why and the big picture is they're all witnesses to the Kennedy murder. Yes, but one aspect of it, it turns out that almost all of them had something to do with knowledge of Tippett's friendship with oh. Jack Ruby. And a guy named Hank Kellum, who died a very strange death, his wife used to dance with Jack Ruby in the carousel club. Well, then let's but, turn this upside down. Suppose the whole plot Mr. Morningstar was built around this incredible likeness between Tippett and JFK. Oh, sure. And you build it out from there because it's not that it happens in Dallas by happenstance. It was Dallas because that's where Tippett was on the force. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, that was, if it hadn't happened in Dallas, it would have happened in Chicago or Miami because they they need a look alike. They needed a look alike. And you know what? There's a thing called the Miltier tapes, and this what, is where what, 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 what? the Miltier tapes. Miltier, they deal, okay. They, de- they deal with uh, an FBI. Well, not FBI. A Miami Police Department was uh, tracking uh, Ku Klux Klan activity in in, uh, in in Miami, in Florida, and there was a guy named William Somerset who played poker with Joseph Miltier, the number three man in the Ku Klux Klan. And they were being recorded. And during that recording, Miltier says, yeah, they're, they're going to get them. You know, they're going to they're gonna get them. We have a couple of different plans. And one plan is to get them from a high office building with a telescopic rifle that can be knocked down and disassembled really quickly. Another plan is to get a shooter into a hotel across from the White House. And when Kennedy comes out on the veranda... Get him from there. Wait, that's the Hay Adams Hotel. Well, whatever Adams... I've had dinner there. Well, listen to this. Right across Lafayette Square. So I read that, and I said to myself, my God, this is the plan that they used when they killed Martin Luther King. Yes, the motel. They lured him out onto the veranda, and they shot him purportedly from a hotel across from the Lorraine Motel, but the shot actually came from a different direction. We won't get too deeply into that, except I'll say to you, there is an excellent interview that was conducted by Kintia and Annetta and Timothy Saunders, and it's called A Tripwire to Tyranny. And in that interview that is linked there at the bottom, Tripwire to Tyranny, I basically exposed the role of the FBI in the assassination of John F. Kennedy their role in the assassination of Martin Luther King, for which they paid $50,000, and their role in framing 
Sirhan Sirhan, who shot at Robert Kennedy, but didn't kill Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy was killed by the security guard who had him by the arm, leading him uh, through the kitchen. He grabbed this is this is really really well. Uh, there's another evidence of a fusillade of bullets in that kitchen. Exactly, but listen to this. Robert Kennedy was supposed to leave through the grand uh, ballroom, through the main lobby, but for some reason, they said, "No, we're going to go out through the kitchen." So the manager took Robert Kennedy by the right elbow, right arm, and Thane Caesar. That was the security guard who worked for the military industrial complex as a security guard at an aerospace corporation. He had him by the right arm and they were both leading him, holding his arms. And at one point when Sirhan jumped out, Robert Kennedy turned because Thane Caesar grabbed his arm too hard. He pulled his gun and brought it over and put it to the back of his head. Kennedy's head. Robert Kennedy's head and Robert Kennedy reached out with his arm and he grabbed them by the throat and when he grabbed them by the throat they both fell to the ground they wrestled and fell to the ground and Robert Kennedy ripped off a, a tie you know those clip on oh I, the, the famous photograph of the tie yeah just lying yeah, there so in, in the blood Kennedy, yeah he took the tie and he clutched it to his chest and he held onto it as he was dying and only when the doctors, actually a Filipino nurse was the first one to arrive and the doctors were surrounded, he put out his arm and he dropped the tie. We did a show on this on the 50th yes, anniversary. Yes, we did. People will go back and you'll see how the cover-up involved Life magazine because the, the, the photograph I'm talking about was the cover of Life magazine the following week. But they covered up they the covered tie up with the a menu. They covered up the tie on the floor with a menu. The other thing that happened on the 50th anniversary was that the Washington Post did a commemorative article and some good guy at the Washington Post posted a picture of Robert Kennedy dying on the ground, surrounded by reporters. And so you see Robert Kennedy and the legs and shoes of the reporters and between the legs of one reporter, you see a hand reaching for a cop's hat. You see the hand of the killer coming to retrieve his hat from the floor, and it's between the legs of a reporter. And that, that uh, luckily, I took a photograph off the screen of, of that um, event because the next day after I tipped off all my friends in the JFK community, you've got to check out the Washington Post. They've got a picture of St. Caesar retrieving his hat from between the feet of a reporter. They scrubbed it. But fortunately, I had taken a, a photograph off the screen, and um, we'll, we'll track the original one down. But anyway, back to Tippett. So Tippett's body was – look, there were no cell phone and there were no phone booths. Well, if around. people – let me – we only got five minutes or four minutes now until the top okay. of the hour. If, mm-hmm. if you want to see the incredible likeness between JFK and Officer Tippett, look at uh, your item number – I think it's number one. It's number one in, in that it's an interview in 37 minutes. Called Warning, The Ultimate Secret of the JFK Assassination. Yeah, I compiled all of the import, most important photographs. And if you go through it in the little time, 37 minutes. You, you see, Richard and I have a goal tonight, which is to relieve you from mind control. 
<laughs> anyone who believes that Oswald killed President Kennedy is under the worst form of mind control anyone could imagine. And we're going to liberate you tonight. So we're at the break, I think. A couple of minutes? Yeah, we got a couple of minutes. So Okay. So this is it all boils down to this is that um our nation has been divided and conquered by an alien intelligence, and I consider Nazis aliens and Fourth Reich aliens, and they have pitted us against each other by using these psychological techniques, ploys, mass deception. And they brought us against each other. And I'm happy to say that Richard and I have reconciled. We had really terrible political differences over the last four <laughs> years. And it turns out that both of us have been fooled. And the FBI is at the, at the heart of it. They interfered in the 2016 election. They interfered in the 2020 election. God only knows what else they're interfering with right now. But the real enemy of the American people is the deep state. What we really have to do is divest ourselves of both the Central Intelligence Agency and the FBI. They have been the, they have been the principal malefactors in the deterioration of our culture and the deception of our people. And we'll, we'll get more into that uh, a bit later. But the whole thing is mind control. And Richard and I are going to talk about uh, Jolion Louis Jolion West, who was working for the CIA, interviewed Jack Ruby after the assassination and declared him insane, but they never told anybody that he was deeply involved in the CIA's MK Ultra program. In fact, he was in charge of the East Coast management of the MK Ultra program, while William Bryan was in charge of the West Coast uh, MK Ultra program. That's the mind control program that was initiated in the 1950s and culminated. It hasn't culminated because a lot of people are still under mass deception, except people who listen to the other side of midnight and watch those two interviews that uh, I've three interviews that I've put there the warning, the ultimate secret, and then um, the secret space agenda that I did with uh, Faust Checo. And then, of course, the interview with Kintia. Listen to those three, and you will have a clear picture of how terribly distorted our history has been over the last 60 years. To say the least. Okay, we are at the uh, top of the hour. 11.59 and a few seconds to go. My guest this morning, Robert Morningstar. We're tracking back to Robert's remarkably innovative and seminal research into what really happened the day John Fitzgerald Kennedy was killed. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is figuratively, metaphorically, the dark side of the moon.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight, The Witching Hour. I don't know why they call it that. I've got to dig into that. A lot of urban myths out there. The Witching Hour. In the land of enchantment here in New Mexico, it is officially here Christmas Day. Christmas 2022. And what we're trying to do as a very unusual Christmas present is to give you the background for why probably the most important thing that John Kennedy did as president of the United States is to give the human race back the real moon. And in 2023, because of what another president, Joe Biden, did just a couple of days ago, it is now legally, legally possible for anyone in NASA who wants to reveal the actual real imagery of what Artemis saw upon the moon to reveal it to the upper echelons and to the appropriate congressional committees and even the NASA UAP committee itself. So we're going to definitely stay tuned on that. Okay, Robert, so let's pick up the pace here because we only got like about an hour to yeah. go through uh, a like lot to, of material. I'd like to do this quickly. I'd like to go back to the ghost of Christmas past. Whoops. Sorry. It's okay. I'd like to go back to the ghost of Christmas past and tell you what the real miracle was. I didn't recognize his face, and it took me years to realize who it was. But the reason I did not recognize his face was the expression on his face. It turns out that that expression was the key to solving this mystery. What he showed me was his face with the same expression that was in the only picture of Tippett that had been released for 33 years. In 33 years, from 63 to 93, only one picture of Tippett had been released, showing this surly-looking guy uh, in a cowboy shirt with his hair slicked back and um, looking about 26 years old. That's what the first thing I said to myself, you know, Tippett was 39. This guy looks 26. Why aren't they showing us pictures of Tippett? So it turns out that 
the expression when I looked and contemplated the picture of Tippett that my memory was jogged and somehow I've seen this before. So I started looking for pictures of Kennedy with a similar expression. And that's when I found a postcard. I was involved in reproducing all these things without computer. This was all photo work and enlargements and Xeroxes. So if you look closely at that split face picture, yeah, it's, not, actually, it's also now number seven. It's, it's just a single frame without the uh, YouTube thing on it. Okay. So, so number seven, you should be looking at, at the site, Robert, really. Well, um, <laughs> it's hard to do with a wacky computer. Okay. But uh, anyway, since you have it there, uh, it's number seven. Itself. It speaks for itself. It's eerie. It, it is so eerie. I'm thinking right. they built this plot. They had to have built it around Tippett. Oh, yes. Yes. And who would be the person that would know this? There is one person involved in this whole scenario who knew every officer in the Dallas Police Department. Ruby. Who was it? Uh, no. No? Lyndon Johnson. Oh, that's Lyndon another. Yeah, Johnson yeah. was, listen to this. Madeline, Madeline Brown was Lyndon Johnson's mistress, and I knew her very well. We talked for hours. She wrote a book called Texas in the Morning. And she says that on November 14th, um, November 8th, excuse me, November 8th of 1963, Lyndon Johnson had a pre-inaugural victory party at Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. And she was there with Lyndon Johnson at Jack Ruby's Carousel Club two weeks before President Kennedy was killed. And Jack Ruby came around, you know, he was a big, uh, he was a big showman, show off and showman. And he came over to the table and said, hi. And he said, look, look what I've got. And he showed Madeline Brown the map of the president's motorcade route. Two weeks before the assassination, Jack Ruby had the map, the, the street map of the route that President Kennedy would take, ultimately going down Main Street, making a right on Houston Street and a left on Elm Street, to which Madeline Brown replied, saying to Jack Ruby, well, it looks like you're really in tight with the great white fathers, aren't you, Jack? And Jack smiled and just folded the map and went away. Now, the great white fathers, my God, you know, that, that, that struck me. It was like lightning hitting me because I'd heard that term in 1962 from a very close friend of mine whose father was Protestant, his mother was Catholic, and we were discussing who's the most powerful man on planet Earth? And some said Khrushchev, and some said Kennedy, and some said the Pope. And so we were going through this. This is like, what year is it? We were seventh or eighth grade. And uh, I said, well, I think it's Kennedy because he has n more nuclear missiles than, <laughs> than, um, than Khrushchev. And the Pope doesn't have nuclear missiles, so I don't think he, he counts. And so I think President Kennedy is the most powerful man in the world. And my friend says to me, that's not what my father says. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. My father says that there's somebody, there's somebody that tells the president what to do. I said, really? He said, I said, who's that? He said, well, nobody knows their names, but they're called the great white fathers. I said, what? He said, yeah. And I said, listen, Catholics have the Pope. Who do Protestants have? He said, we don't have, they don't have a Pope. They have the great white fathers. It's the leaders of 
of the Protestant sect. They take their orders from these nameless people who are known as the Great White Fathers. And of course, we all know the Westerners, Western movies where the the cavalry is trying to make peace with the uh, Native Americans and say the Great White Father in Washington. Right, right. So it turns out... Well, there's also the Great White Brotherhood. That's right. And they have the Great White Fathers as their leaders. So it turns out there was a clique that involved the top oil men, the top newspaper men, and politicians, and J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI. They used to get together in a Houston uh, hotel, uh, Suite 8F at a particular hotel there, and they used to play poker and then decide national policy there. So um, the Dealey brothers, J. Edgar Hoover, R.L. Thornton, after whom the Thornton uh, Expressway is named, and the Bushes were involved. George W. Bush, I have to tell you, was the commander of this plot to kill President Kennedy. And it was a revenge plot. The revenge for the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was commanded by George H.W. Bush. It was called Operation Zapata. We didn't know that for 30 years. It came out with plausible denial. Which is named after his oil company. Yes, exactly. Which is named after, what, some Aztec god? No, no, no. Zapata was... uh, was a Mexican revolutionary okay. from the time of Pancho Villa. Okay. But uh, it's a really weird choice of names. And, of course, his nickname was Poppy, P-O-P-P-Y. Yep. Not like Poppy or Popeye or Papa. You know, it's like poppy seeds and poppy flowers and heroin because he was the master of the drug trade. He took over the drug trade. Operation Zapata was a had two two fronts. It had two functions. One was making attacks on Cuba, but the other part was drugs. Drugs were being shipped through Cuba, and they were taken from Cuba to the Zapata oil, um, the the rigs, the the rigs in the sea. He was off north north coast of Cuba, so the drugs would go to these uh, oil rigs. And then they'd be shipped to the United States in the boats that were carrying the workmen because the workmen, being American citizens, didn't have to go through customs. And, of course, George Bush, being a frontman for the CIA, also made sure that they were. Oh, yeah, mid-ocean rendezvous. Who can check that? Exactly. So what I want to say is about the ghost of Christmas past, he showed me the expression on his face that I would need to know 13 years later to recognize the expression on the single picture of Tippett so that I could make the association and split and realize there was, this was the question going back to David Lifton. How could the Warren commission autopsy describe in detail two hemispheres of a brain when only half a hemisphere survived the attack on president Kennedy? And I said, jokingly, I said, what did they do? Pull a brain out of a hat, like a rabbit out of a hat? Hmm. No. Officer Tippett was killed, but I didn't know about the head wound. It was only when I read Jim Bishop's book, The Day That Kennedy Was Shot, that I went to that page describing his uh, killing, and it said that Tippett had been shot with a bullet that entered his right temple, 
struck the back of his head, but did not exit. The bullet fell back in. His th- he had a thick skull, and it hit. It doubled the skull inside, and it fell back in. And this is where we come to the parasagittal laceration that made the doctor think the man was killed with an axe. Killed with an axe, wow. Because the parasagittal laceration was the laceration that was done by Dr. Earl Rose to retrieve the bullet from Tippett's brain. And then the rest is history. So Tippett's brain and Tippett's photographs were substituted for those of President Kennedy because the brain... Uh, was not there, so they presented a fake brain. And the brain had been shot by a single bullet through the head. That part is true. They took a brain that had been shot by a single bullet through the head, presented it to the autopsist. Now, here's the other weird thing. All of these things were done, the skullduggery was done uh, between the assassination and the beginning of the autopsy, which was, uh, let me see, it started at 8 o'clock. So approximately seven and a half hours, uh, they doctored Tippett's body and presented it to autopsists who'd never seen Kennedy alive. But here's the weird thing about the autopsy. Well, whose body was brought on Air Force One back to D.C. that night? Both bodies were shipped to, uh, to D.C. And the bodies... See, there was a fake casket. The body... There was not a body in the casket that Jackie accompanied because the real bodies arrived at 6.45, you know, several minutes, a quarter hour before Jackie and the entourage arrived at Bethesda. Bodies were being offloaded in the bays at at Bethesda. And um, Gerald Coster, Paul O'Connor, whom I knew and interviewed in 1998 on the 35th anniversary, of the assassination and Dennis David, who I also knew these three corpsmen, Navy corpsmen, they received the bodies and they actually did. Um, they opened up the bodies and I'll never forget. Paul O'Connor said to me, look, he said the Warren commission says there was a Y incision made on the body. He said, there was no Y incision. Y incision refers to the way of cutting open the body. You know, you, you cut it as a Y from shoulder to sternum, right, shoulder right. to sternum, right down the, the middle. And he said, there were, he, I'm never forgetting, he was dying of cancer. And he really wanted to tell the world the truth. And he told it to me. And he said, there was no Y incision. He said, we got that body and we got these electric saws. And we started at the left hip and we cut right up straight through the ribs and across the the top of the chest and down like a big like a horseshoe shape. And then we pulled back the whole front of it to expose. There was no Y incision. So one body got a Y incision. Another body got opened up like a horse blanket. Those are Paul O'Connor's words. Hmm. And so that's why I say the word skullduggery. This is the invasion of the body. Well, that had to be Tippett, he was describing. Yeah, it had to be Tippett. But if you read... Um, Harry Livingston, Harry Li- Harrison Livingston um, the third, wrote a, several books, High Treason and High Treason Two. They are excellent books. And uh, when you read uh, David Lifton as well, a very most important book, David Lifton, there was some rigmarole going on in Bethesda. The doctors were told, okay, here, 
do this, do this, do this. Okay, get out of the room. They get out of the room. They close the curtains. Then they'd be brought in, and the body was in a different position. These are Navy doctors. uh, Well, one was a Navy doctor. That was Dr. Commander Humes. One was an Army colonel, uh, Pierre Fink, and uh, Boswell was the third one. These poor men, you know, they had never performed an autopsy at all in their lives. And all of the top autopsists in Washington had called and volunteered their services. So now they got three guys, three military men. Who had who no idea what they were doing. Well, they, they, in that sense, yeah, they had never performed an autopsy before. But the other really suspicious thing is that Commander Humes burned his original notes on the autopsy and his original sketches on Sunday. He burned them. And he made up some lame story that there was blood on the notes and uh, he didn't want them to become part of a cult or something like that. But anyway, everyone was compromised. Earl Warren was compromised. His name has gone down in disgrace. He was a great, a great uh, chief justice. He cried. Earl Warren was forced by Lyndon Johnson and all of the others were forced by Lyndon Johnson under the threat of nuclear war with the Russians. Yeah, if we do this... Soviets will strike. Well, no. If the people know that uh, if we don't do it this way uh, and pin it on Oswald, everybody will know that Castro and uh, Russia did it. That was his ploy. And uh, he was was really actually uh, one of the masterminds of, of the whole plot. And the plot was to stop JFK from going to the moon with the Russians and not jumping into hell in Vietnam. He had ordered the withdrawal of American troops 1,000 by Christmas of 1963, with the rest to be removed by 1965. He had no intention of getting involved in a, in a, a protracted war in Vietnam. And that was thanks to General MacArthur, because John Kennedy went to see General MacArthur on his deathbed, basically. He was in the hospital in his last days, and they said that when Kennedy came out of this conversation with uh, General MacArthur, his face was ashen. And it was because MacArthur said to him, don't plan to get into any wars in Asia if you're not planning to use nuclear weapons. Because there's no way that you can win uh, a conventional war against the hordes, you know, meaning um, the Asian masses, specifically uh, China if it were to enter on the side of uh, Vietnam. So Kennedy saw the light. He saw the light during the 1962 missile crisis that we had almost gone to nuclear war and almost by mistake. So that was a big thing on JFK's mind for the last year of his life. And McNamara didn't come out until years later and revealed that we ultimately found out that the Russians had tactical nukes uh, in in Cuba, so any right. invasion would have been – it would have gone to thermonuclear war. Right, because uh, Khrushchev had invested the authority into his uh, field commanders and said, you know, if the United States invades Cuba and the 7th Fleet shows up to uh, de- deploy the troops, use the Luna, Luna missiles and uh, tactical nuclear weapon. Ironic, and ironic, yes, Luna missiles. Hmm. Isn't it? Isn't it ironic? But thank God John F. Kennedy was there, and um, he saved the world. He he and Robert, let me tell you this part of the story. 
the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, that we had set a, 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 a line of demarcation in the Atlantic Ocean and told the Russians, if your ships carrying those missiles cross this line, it's going to be an act of war. But lo and behold, the ships crossed the line. And then Curtis LeMay and the Joint Chiefs said, oh, look, they did it. They crossed the line. You know, that's an act of war. You told them, we'll, let's nuke them. And President Kennedy was shocked. He was utterly shocked, so shocked that he slumped in his chair and he started crying. He started weeping. And at that moment, the, the Joint Chiefs look at, looked at him with great disdain and said, basically, you know, what a pussy. He's not willing to go all the way. And Robert Kennedy read their expressions and he stood up. And Robert Kennedy said to the Joint Chiefs, no, gentlemen, you are not going to turn my brother into Tojo. If we were to do this, we would be no better than the Japanese were at Pearl Harbor. And then President Kennedy mustered his courage after his brother spoke up. And he said, no, gentlemen, I will not be the first man in history to unleash nuclear holocaust on mankind. You will stand down. And the two Kennedy brothers stood up against the Joint Chiefs in that day. They saved the world. Hmm. And, and there's, there's also very, Sheehan, by the way, there's also the source of this. The Robert, source of this is Daniel Sheehan. Ah, there's also a very unsung hero who was a Soviet submarine captain. Yes, remember him? Well, it, it was the executive officer. Yes. Uh, what's his name? Dmitry Akasov. Yeah, he refused, to, he refused to press the button. You know, the, the, the U.S. was dropping depth charges on a, new, on a Russian submarine. Mm-hmm. They were under attack. And so they said, you know, we, we got to launch. And it took three. But this took, was without Kennedy's permission. This was part of the Joint Chiefs right, operation. Right. It was without Kennedy's permission. And this problem of permission was what was driving President Kennedy crazy. He had made a deal with Khrushchev to cease all attacks on Cuba. But a rogue element of the CIA continued to attack Cuba through 1963. Mm. And who who was this? None other than our friend George Bush and the rogue element of the CIA. So as as late as April of 1963, these um, Operation 40 uh, guerrilla attacks on Cuba were being conducted. And they blew up the Hess refinery in, um, in Cuba in April of 63. And President Kennedy said, these guys have gone rogue. And so he called up the FBI and he told them to arrest these CIA guys who have gone rogue. So that put George Bush on the run because he was the guy that was directing, uh, using his platforms and also uh, facilitating these attacks on Cuba. If you read a book called A Family, uh, Family of Secrets by Russell Baker. It says that George Bush and Thomas Crichton collected $2 million from Texas oilmen to fund the JFK assassination. So George Bush's fingerprints are all over this. And um, I would invite... Uh, Keith Morgan to tell us his story about his encounter with George Bush in a very brief fashion. He met him. Keith Morgan met George Bush during his nightline career. 
And he had a very brief conversation that speaks volumes. So if you would, I'd like uh, Keith Morgan to tell that story. Uh, yeah. Um, you guys can hear me, right? Yep. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I met uh, George Bush when I was working at ABC. Mr. Senior. Um, George Bush Senior. Yeah. George Bush Senior, not W. And... Um, I was, uh, I told him my, uh, my mother worked with under him when he was director of central intelligence and he said, Oh yeah, what's her name? And I said, uh, Jean Morgan. Oh, okay. And he took out a presidential vice president card and signed it. And then, uh, he said something, I don't know. It, it was kind of like he was trying to get something off his chest and he said, if the American people knew what we had done, They'd run us out of town on a rail, tarred and feathered. And I didn't know what he was talking about and because I had security clearances for the White House and the gallery, Capitol Gallery Pass and DC Police Pass. I didn't want to I didn't want to challenge my uh clearance by asking him what the heck he was talking about. Um So he just Barbara, blurted this out. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, you were a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Barbara Honig thinks it's uh, the October surprise, but I had I had a different impression at the time when he said that. I had uh, I got the idea it had something to do with the Kennedy assassination, but I didn't pursue that. But that yeah, was interesting. Yeah, you might not be alive if you had. Mm. But let me just finish off the George Bush angle. In 2014, I spoke at the uh, Secret Space Program Breakaway Civilization Conference in San Mateo, California. I was taken aside by a gentleman, a friend named Ed Grimsley. And oh, he, I know Ed. Yeah, remember the guy? Yeah, he's no longer with us. Robin no, and I have an amazing night on the top of a hotel in Amsterdam using his night vision to see yeah. all kinds of bizarre things that did not appear to be normal aircraft. So Ed Grimsley was there. He spoke there. And he took me aside. He said, can we have lunch together? I said, sure. So we went over to the oh, commissary. Oh, I remember this now. Yeah. Oh, it, my it God. Continue. Shocking, shocking Continue. So, yes. Yeah. So we walk up. We get the food. And we walk up to this table, huge round table that could seat eight people. And, we, and he sat down. And I was sitting down. And a young couple came over. Can we have lunch with you? And I said, oh, sure. Of course you can. And Ed said, excuse me, I really need to speak to him privately. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And so they, they very kindly left. So he says to me, I know who you are. And I said, what do you mean you, you know who I am? You mean my work in the Kennedy assassination? He said, yes, I know who you are. I said, oh, is, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, in 1963, I was the top marksman, rifleman in the state of Texas. I'd won every, every shooting contest and I'd won the state championship. And I was working, I was shooting, practicing at a shooting range in June of 1963 in Texas. And a man came up to me and he said, hey, you're a pretty good shot. You know, we've been watching you. And I said, uh, thank you very much. And uh, then he said to me, are you interested in a job? And he said, a job? Sure. 
So the man gave him his business card, uh, office in Houston, and he said, call up my office and make an appointment and we'll, we'll have a talk. So he called up and then he went up to Houston and he met with this uh, businessman. And he said to me, I went up to his office and we shook hands and we sat down. Uh, and Taylor, said, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. You don't want to miss this, folks. This is one of those holy cow stories. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return right back. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Christmas Eve, Christmas Day program for all you faithful listeners who kind of would have missed us if we weren't here. We, uh, We appreciate your listening, and we hope you'll stay with us in the new year. There are some amazing things to come. Amazing. So back to Robert. So you're having this little right. luncheon yeah. with Grimsley. Yes. And, and he tells you the story about being approached by someone yeah. who Business said, do you want a job? And he says, uh, well, what is it? Yeah. So he goes to Houston and goes to the man's office. He's welcome there. And ushered into the office, and he shakes hands with the man. And the man says, "Oh, yeah, you know." He, he had told me, and he said it again. He said, "Yeah, we've been watching you for a, a long time." And he said that kind of struck me strangely, you know, you know, being watched as a shooter. So he said, "Are you interested in a job?" And he said, yeah, "Well, what is what does it pay?" And he said, two million dollars." And he said, and Ed said, "Whoa, that's a lot of money. What do I have to do?" And he says. We have to kill somebody. And he said, well, who do I have to kill? He said, John F. Kennedy. And he said, oh, so sorry, brother. I don't want any part of that. that, That's not me. And they agreed not to talk about it. He shook hands, you know, Texas uh, gentleman. uh, 
uh, handshake uh, is your word, and you will never talk about this to anyone again. So fine, he left. And I said to him, Ed, are you telling me that somebody approached you in June of 1963, offered you $2 million to kill John F. Kennedy? And he had this steely-eyed look on his face, and he didn't blink. And he said, yep. And I said, do you remember who that's, this man was? He said, yep. And I looked at him. I said, well, are you willing to tell me who this man was? He said, yep. And I said, well, who was it? He said, George H.W. Bush. Oh, good God. Oh, good God. And I, you know, like this wave went through my body. The the truth of it just struck me like something that all of us had known. And I said, Ed, I want to thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart that you've trusted me with this. And I promise you, I will never tell anyone this information that while you're alive. I'm never going to put you in danger. So you can, you can trust me to, to, hold, to, hold, to be true to my word, and I will never divulge it as long as you're alive because I don't want you to be Good uh, in danger. So he, he lived another 14 months, and you obviously had uh, your encounter with him. Ed Grimsley had joined the U.S. Air Force and uh, became a sergeant, and his UFO um, interest goes back a very, very long way, and God bless him uh, for having Yeah, that's always, almost a perfect segue, because uh, uh, Barbara Honiger, of course, a member of the Reagan White House, uh, mm-hmm. speaking of Ronald Reagan, President of the United States, is on the line. Obviously, she's been attending these assassination conferences that mm-hmm. have been held for the last, you know, almost 60 years. Um, yes. I think she may have something to contribute. Sure. So, Barbara, are you on the air? Uh, yes, Barbara? can you hear me? There you are. We hear you wonderfully. Yeah, yes. can you hear me okay? <laughs> Good. Clear. Yeah, I'm on, the, I'm on the phone as opposed to Skype tonight. Um, well, just a few comments. Um, George Bush Sr. absolutely is the spider in the middle of the web. Um, he also was, um, was behind the attempt to kill Ronald Reagan. Uh, there's no question whatsoever about that. Well, there was this bizarre dinner in the Bush family with Hinckley and all that yes. just before the assassination attempt. No, not Hinckley. Hinckley's brother was was to already had set up a celebratory dinner um, in case on the assumption that Reagan would be dead. Oh, um, okay. With with Hinckley's brother along with uh, George Bush Senior's. Um, uh, uh, other son. I think it was Neil Bush. Mm-hmm. They do like their rituals. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. And uh, the comment uh, that the Keith made, I wanted to make a comment on that. It's not a speculation that George Bush Sr., when he was vice president, um, used an almost identical quote to the, to the quote that he gave to Keith when he was vice president in the White House. And that was, you know, if the American people knew the truth about what we have done, they'd, in this case, he said they would, uh, they would hang us from the, uh, the closest lamppost. And that was to my political godmother, Sarah McClendon, the senior White House correspondent. Mm. Um, and he had said that to her when she confronted him uh, about the October surprise and his three proven false alibis for where he was for the October surprise meeting in Paris. Uh, 
um, which we now know that he did attend, and he lied three times about it. And all three of his alibis were proven false by the FBI. And Sarah had um, confronted him in the White House press room, and that's what he said to Sarah, who immediately, of course, told me. So it's not a speculation. I think that George Bush is one of these people who felt so arrogant and so secure that nothing could ever touch him that he said something like that to a lot of people about a lot of things. Hmm. Leaving, conscience leaving trails of breadcrumbs. I think that, uh, you know, there is something in human beings that wants to tell the truth, even if they're the most nefarious Well, it people. may even but, be more twisted than that. Suppose you want credit for doing something horrendous, but you can't admit it when you're alive. You leave right. enough clues, the smart ones may put it together when you're dead. Hey, let's not forget uh, Gerald Ford's funeral. When Bush went out to talk at Gerald Ford's funeral, he he laughed. He he said, and then there came that day <laughs> when a lone nut, when a lone gunman killed President Kennedy, and the smile was across his face. Everybody picked it up. But since Barbara has called, I want to uh, I want I wanted to tell you this, Barbara, for a very very long time. 23 uh-huh. years after that experience at Oberlin with that visitation, 23 years in June of 2004, right. I was uh, going to sleep and I, I looked into the other room and I saw that white figure approaching me again. And he was walking from the other room in the darkness toward me like he had at Oberlin. And now it's 23 years later. I know who he was. I know why he came. And I wasn't scared. I was actually a little bit cocky. And I said, hey, what are you doing here tonight? You haven't shown up in 23 years. Why are you coming here tonight? (laughs) And when I said that, this white figure backed out and a black figure came in and attacked me. And it was the banshee. And I was paralyzed. And this thing, this black negative space kept trying to smother me. It came and it was putting its hand over my, my nose and my mouth. And all I could do was breathe and turn my head. I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. And I, was, I would just breathe and blow and, right? and evade it. Right? And he'd go around. It stalked me. It went around the bed. It took another angle. It jumped on me and again smothering me every time. Another time it turned into a big black cloth and covered my face. And after three hours of this struggle, I said to it, I know you're death. I know who you are. You are death. But I'm telling you, I'm going to fight you till the last breath of my life. And then he attacked again. And I thought that I was at the last breath of my life. And he smothered me. And I took that breath and I went, and I blew it away. It blew away like a black sailboat in a gale force wind. And at last I could move. I was... I moved and my bed, my bed was drenched in sweat and I was cold as hell. And I go, what the heck was that about? I wake up the next morning and I turn on the television and I hear the announcer. I used to watch CNN in those days. And the announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you that President Ronald Reagan is in the last hours of his life. He is in the hospital and surrounded by his family, and uh, he is not expected to survive. He is uh, suffering from complications due to pneumonia. 
Yeah, by the way, um, I don't know if you've heard the programs and multiple programs I've done with uh, Richard Hoagland on this show uh, on my experiences that day. There were genuine miracles that saved both Reagan and Jim Brady. Right, and the mirror and the rainbow on top of it. Oh, yeah, I've heard all. Everyone and and I was, I was, the, I was, I was the one who called the White House, uh, the White House photographer to come up and take a photo of the rainbow. Yep. Well, also to thank you for revealing to us that Nancy Reagan, Ed Gray was that his name? I think he said was the man. Uh, who Ed Gray was. Well, I'm sorry. His what? speechwriter. His speechwriter. You all decide. They all decided we can't let George. Bush they all. De- they all decided that they. They didn't. They. They just knew. I. This is my inference, but they absolutely knew. Mies Baker and Deaver and Nancy Reagan and Deaver represented Nancy Reagan in the Troika, right under Ronald Reagan. Uh-huh. They knew that George Bush Senior was behind the assassination attempt. That his people were for his benefit, no question. Yeah. And they refused to. Uh, initiate the 25th Amendment, and I was there mm-hmm. when Ed Meese came into Ed Gray's office. Ed Gray was my boss, the chief domestic policy advisor, Martin Anderson's um, deputy. Um, when Ed Gray that night came into Ed Gray's office, and I was in the office with him, it was only the three of us in the West Wing of the White House. And Ed Meese came in and told Ed Gray in my presence, let me stay to hear it. Um, I said, do you want me to leave Ed to Ed Meese? And he said, no, stay. And then Ed Meese said to Ed Gray, look, we're, we've decided, the Troika has decided absolutely not to invoke the 25th Amendment. We're not going to allow George Bush Sr. to become acting president under the 25th Amendment. However, we don't know. We do know that Reagan will survive physically. We do not know as of that time at night. I'm, I'm thinking this was about 10 or 11 p.m. at night. Um, That's what was happening. Yeah, and um, and he said to Ed Gray, he said to Ed Gray, uh, we have de- we have decided that because we don't know if Reagan will be mentally able to take uh, the take back the responsibilities of the office, but we're going to mislead the public. We're going to tell him that he's much better off than he is until we know whether he can take over his responsibilities again. And in the meantime, because we're not going to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment for sure. If there's any critical decision, we are going to come to you, Ed Gray, and you make the decision because As you think more like Ronald Reagan, Reagan than anyone else. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. I was there when that happened. Wow. They saved the country yeah. that day, that night. And as that yes, was happening, I was, being yes. visited. I was being visited by the ghost of John F. Kennedy, which nearly killed me. I'm not kidding. You know, I've, I've I tell well, the That's a mystery to me. Why would the ghost of John F. Kennedy be so negative? Oh, to stop to me. To protect you? From, from, that doesn't sound like me. protection, what you went through. Oh, he almost well, killed was, you. you know, sometimes you can scare the hell out of somebody and stop them from pursuing a course. It's the make no wine before it's time. Exactly. Brother. I was speaking about things too soon. And that's why the I Ching said to me, put this aside now. If you pursue it now, You'd be uh, exposing yourself to danger and possibly even death. Yeah, but why was it too soon? Why was it too soon? Because it has to go with the physics. It has to go with the physics. I don't know why. I don't know why. I know why, guys. I've only spent 50 years. I I know your theory, Richard. I know your theory, but I want. 
you know. Yeah, but I want to hear from Robert. I want if, I want if, to hear from if, Robert. Hang on, hang on, hang on. If you go back to the New Testament, Christ says in several parables, if you do the right thing at the wrong time, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. It's got to be the right thing at the right time. Timing is everything in the model of the physics. Okay, well, I want to, I want to also hear why Robert thinks it wasn't the right time. Well, I think that it's because my theory was wrong that all the world's religions are equal and they're all worshiping the same God. And it all boils down to this Luciferic influence that was transferred from Islam to the Templars and the Templars to the Masons and from the Masons to the United States uh, Brotherhoods. And now that this uh, influence, it's... Uh, has taken over almost every really great um, institution and uh, religion. So the enemy that we face today is Luciferism under many disguises and a satanic plot to lead mankind to self-destruction, which has always been his goal. So well, as you know, the Nazis were, were explicit worshippers of, of Lucifer. Yes, yes, and so we have the Fourth Reich. We right. let ourselves be infiltrated by a Trojan horse. That's basically where they yeah. got their idea, Galen, Galen and, and von Braun and, and the others. So the, the secret society influence is uh, pernicious and extensive. And I, since we're talking about the occult aspects of this, I want to tell everyone, it was a satanic murder ritual in Dealey Plaza it, the date, November 22nd, 1963, was 656 years to the day that Jacques de Molay and the Templars were burned at the stake by the French king. And they swore revenge on the Catholic Church and um, all things associated with Roman Catholicism. And 656 is a really telling number. When you do the numerology and you do 1963, that adds up to 10. So they might have wanted to kill uh, in, in, on the 666th anniversary, but they had to settle for that November 22nd. And it turns out that it also corresponds astronomically with the date, star date, you know, Star Trek, star date, star date of the assassination of Osiris. Osiris was killed when Mars was in Scorpio. And it turns out that President Kennedy was aware of all of these things. It's, in a matter of fact, in the morning when he was landing in Dallas, he said to um, uh, Powers, uh, his uh, chief of staff, he said, you know, last night would have been the perfect night to assassinate a president of the United States. A very strange statement. But it turns out that that date, star date, was identical to the date on which Osiris was, was uh, sacrificed by uh, his Okay, now I think, what, I think what you're saying is that Jacques de Molay was immolated on November 22nd? Yeah, November 22nd of 1307. According to uh, the book that I use as my reference on all of these dates is John J. Robinson's Born in Blood which is an, um, an official history of the Freemasons uh, with their blessing. Uh -huh. And in reading that, reading that book, I realized that uh, 
the the ritual involved all of these things and the the punishment that was visited on John F. Kennedy is a fulfillment of the promise, promise that is made to anyone who betrays the Masons. President Kennedy infiltrated the Masons in the 1950s and found out their plan. And then well, he remember, out. he made that famous speech, I think it was at American University, to the newspaper editors, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, it, it's, it's on tape, it's on video, you can find it. Mm-hmm. Some people think of the presidency of the United States as being the head of a fraternal organization. But yes. my, in other words, he was basically indicting that you know, the Masons don't own me because I'm not just the president of that fraternal organization. In other words, it was a direct, indirect Emily Dickinson kind of reference to mm-hmm. telling the truth, but telling it slant. Yes. Well, I, want to, I want to reveal something else very, very important that I don't think I've revealed on your shows before about the day that uh, Reagan was the assassination attempt on Reagan. And that is that if people remember, there was the so-called Geronimo's curse. So when, okay. when, the, United, when the United States Army Cavalry um, decimated the Native Americans and Geronimo was killed just as he died um, at least this is the story as it goes um, that he put a curse on presidents of the United States any president who was uh, elected in a year that ended as I recall in zero in 1980 that was Ronald Reagan's election um, was one of those Uh, when Reagan survived the assassination attempt he broke Geronimo's curse Yes. Well, this you know, Geronimo is all, involved real. In all of this because do you know the story about um, the Bushes stealing Geronimo's uh, head? Well, this had to do with. Oh, absolutely! That, that's the reason. Oh, that's yeah. the reason. Yeah. That's the reason. That is the reason I mentioned it because Geronimo's yeah. skull is in the center of the temple of the Skull and Bones at Yale. Yeah. Is it still that's, there? Yeah. Yes. Well. Presumably. I think I think that they had to give it back. If I remember correctly, there was a uh, a trial, a, a suit, and uh, they had to give it back. But what I wanted to say was that all of these atrocities that were visited on the body of President Kennedy afterwards are a fulfillment of the uh, the, the Masonic oath that um, if uh, a person betrays uh, his oath to the Masons. He will have his head smashed with a setting maul. He will have his throat cut from east to west, and he will have his body uh, cut from north to south, and that his intestines will be burned uh, uh, into ashes and scattered to the four winds. Now, here's the weird Yes, I, un- I understand that. So the question is, what did JFK reveal of their plan? He was going to reveal what's on the moon and in the solar but system. I want to hear from Robert. I want to hear Russia. what of the Masons' well, I, plans. I, I, I agree with Richard uh, that that's part of it. But basically, he was going to reveal to mankind our true origins. And that is something that uh, is anathema to the control forces that, um, that manipulate <clears throat> public opinion and bring us uh, at each other. So, as I said to Richard before the program, 
he and I have reconciled ourselves because we realize that our political differences were inflamed by a third party, a third entity that wants neither yeah. Democrats nor Republicans to to win. They want to win, and the way they win is by turning us against each other so that they have their secret agenda unfolding, which right. is I understand. domination. Here's another but thing. The question is, the man, but the question uh, is, but the question is, if JFK was only planning to reveal the Masons' true plans, but didn't actually get to do so, why did this happen to him? Because if he'd lived, it would have carried through. Yeah, he would have thwarted their plan. I want to say something, that uh, the man who headed MK Ultra, Cord Meyer, was formerly the head of an organization called the World Federalist Party. And between 1946 and 1950, he was uh, pushing for world government and world federalist party. So he ran a political party here in the United States, and it didn't go anywhere. At that point, the CIA hired him. And so their plan for world domination is world federalism. And this is tantamount to what we're seeing with UN governance being touted all around the world uh, to, to bring the whole world under UN governance. That's world federation, world federalism. So that's, uh, that's another thing that uh, he thwarted. They wanted that uh, plan to go ahead. They're still pushing at it. And they look like they're almost successful. It, um, at achieving it at the moment, especially if the United States signs on to the WHO protocol that the WHO will be able to declare pandemics at their whims and declare them on any country in the world. Yeah, you know, the good so, news for that is the, re- the Republican, uh, Republican-controlled House will never pass that. They will never right. ratify it. Yeah, thank God for that. Richard, you have a caller on the blog talk. You mean the 818 number? Yes. Okay, why don't we take, uh, guys, you yep. want to take a call? Yes, thank okay. you. Okay, 818, area code, you're on the air. Don? Thanks. Uh, one, and I mentioned this about 31 years ago with you, Richard, on another show. There are, there are supposed to be eight other home movies that the FBI still has locked up. And there is software now. There was software back then, too. But there's software. You could take two more of those plus the Zapruder and create 3D geometry in real time, and you could track the physics of the head moving and the car moving and everything. The second thing is a friend of mine's dad worked at Lockheed Skunk Works on the U-2. And one day, they all went crazy within the same hour on the same day and everything, and his dad had to go to the hospital and have electroshock for like a week and he thinks it's because Oswald had visited the skunk works in the U2 plant before the assassination and so somebody went in there and gave them LSD in their coffee mm-hmm. after the assassination that sounds right mm-hmm. well you know Oswald was uh, a U2 scope dope that's uh, a rare uh, air traffic controller they, the Marines give them a, a, a term of endearment. They're called scope dope. So Oswald was very highly trained in uh, the U-2 
He was stationed in Japan at Atsugi. He took on missions to infiltrate communist groups in Japan. Uh, listen, Oswald is a hero. He gave his life for this country. And uh, I have no qualms about saying that. Uh, read um, the biography by his brother, Robert. See, there were two Lee Oswalds, Robert Lee Oswald and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. And so hmm. you read Robert Oswald's biography of his brother. He lets you know he doesn't think this guy was really his brother. He thinks that, uh, there was, that he was swapped by the Russians because he came back two inches three inches shorter than he was. His hair was kinky, and uh, Oswald, his brother Elise, was uh, wavy and brown. He said he was a bullneck marine, and this guy was scrawny. And there, and he made a couple of faux pas at the Thanksgiving dinner, which tipped him off. So they had to get rid of whoever that was because in cross-examination, too much would have come out. But he was being set up as the patsy. In fact, he was down there under orders. He was working for the FBI and the Justice Department to infiltrate organizations that had animus toward President Kennedy. And wasn't some there people a, somebody, wasn't there somebody in Mexico? Wasn't there someone in, down in Mexico at the embassy? And it wasn't Oswald, but it was... Right, right. They said Oswald was there, and then they finally released a photograph of the man they claimed to be Oswald in the mid-1990s, and it doesn't look anything like Oswald. Hey, guys, uh, we've run out of runway. We're literally down to 30 seconds. Okay, 90 seconds. Thanks. Anyway, guys, I want to thank Barbara Honiger for popping in. I want to thank Robert Morningstar for yeoman service. I want to thank Don for asking a really great set of questions. And I want to thank you, the audience, and I want to tell everyone, I want you to have the best of Christmases, and I want you to anticipate the new year next Sunday. On New Year's night, we're going to have uh, uh, Rick Levine, and we're going to talk about what's going to happen in 2023. And all I can say from the vantage point of one week before the beginning of next year, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be one for the books. So until next week, same time, same bad channel. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. And remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Jingle bell. Good night. Jingle, jingle bell.